In this episode, we'll be doing TFOS 1472 to 1493. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. Tales from Outer Space 1472 Story number one. He'll learn, written by Chain Blue. Senior observer Lelen pulled himself up onto the human-sized chair in the frigate Hamels's sickbay, so that he could directly see the new subordinate's face. Novice Tynet's fine-faced fur was shiny and dark brown in a contrast to his own grey muzzle. From behind, Lelen heard Dr. Glenn's strangely melodic human voice. You're just in time, senior observer. I'm about to wake him. The nanites are done. Once I check his vitals, I will let you to talk. Lelen thanks Dr. Glenn as she expertly went about her work. They were lucky to have a doctor on board a human ship who had also served rotations aboard a mirrored ship. Dr. Glenn tapped a few times on her pad and Tenet's eyes fluttered open. Don't you feel up to it? You are free to leave, novice Tenet. Just ping me or one of the nurses first. Instructed the doctor as she walked towards the bed of a human marine further down the bay. Novice Tenet's eyes focused on his new supervisor and he started to speak. But Lelen shushed him with his stern puff out of the fur and his tail, and then spoke. Novice Tenet, I think you may have set a record for a new observer's first trip to the med bay while on a human vessel. Observed the senior observer. He continued. Hello, novice observers usually end up here for accidentally broken bones from sparring with humans, or muscle strains from terror gravity areas of the ship. I have read the report, but I would like to hear your version. A good observer must be able to explain his, hers, or cap experiences well enough for all Mead can learn from them. Len concluded. Tinette paused and took a deep breath in and held it. He slowly led out and began. I was invited into the human recreation lounge by my assigned human guide, Lieutenant Riley. He said that it would be a good place for me to observe humans doing non-work things and how they socialize. A boisterous group of young male marines was gathered around a small table. They had a plate with several small red plants on it. They also had two large glasses of that bovine lactic fluid. His face fur ruffled in disgust as he spoke about the beverage. That uh, they are so fond of. The young male seemed to be participating in some bonding game or rite of passage. I inquired about their behavior, and Lieutenant Riley told me that they had made wages on that two of the marines would eat the plant, and the first one to reach their beverage would lose. One of the human onlookers counted to, um, three, I think. Base ten numbers are still hard to me. The contestants put the plants into their mouths and chewed. Their faces contorted, and their epidermis changed to a blood flush. Their body temperatures even increased, and they began to excrete their cooling fluid. Shortly, the, the bigger ones jumped up with a fearsome speed and expelled his stomach contents into a nearby waste receptacle. The observers howled with a mad laughter. They laughed so energetically that many seemed to be disabled by it. And one actually laid upon the deck and held his torso and convulsed. Lieutenant Riley chastised them for being rowdy and instructed them to clean up their mess. When they did so, I noticed that a small plant pod was left on the table. 
My ocular implant indicated that it was compatible with mead biology and had no danger flags, so I decided that I would sample it in the name of greater learning. Lieutenant Riley barked out a startling warning to me, and it was too late. I had taken a nipple. It felt like I had eaten the core of a star. I have never experienced anything like it and hope to never do so again. My tongue felt melted, my sinuses flooded with mucus such that it was difficult to respire. My eye even burned. I felt weak and all four leg joints buckled. The next thing I recalled, I was waking up here with a mouthful of distasteful nano-healing gel. Dr. Glenn spoke to me for a bit about my pain level and advised me that I would be sedated for a bit longer while the gel worked. Though I couldn't speak, I did update the foodstuffs file while several warnings for uh, ghost chilies. End of story. Story number two. Human thrill-seeking, written by Space Paladin 15. Myrna thought his friends had gone a bit overboard with the welcome home party. He walked through the door of his apartment to find decorations strung up everywhere and enough food and drinks lying about to serve an army. This was the work of his best friend, Kalquat. Undoubtedly, when Cal had said that they were all coming over as soon as he got back, he'd expected a simple meet-up, not a party with all the bells and whistles. Myrna had just returned from a three-month trip to Terra, the newest planet to join the Federation. The humans had begun marketing their planet as a tourist destination as soon as they got full recognition by the galactic community, promising an adventure of a lifetime. Like most people, he had been skeptical of such claims. But could a backwater like Earth offer compared to the fiery coasts of Tijol or the cryo-volcano results of Dane? These friends crowded around him the moment he stepped in the door, peppering him with questions. Everyone wanted to know what this trip had been like. He spoke of how eager the human civilians had been to welcome him, how luxurious the hotel accommodation had been, and how fussy Terrans were about their cuisine. Earth was more technologically sophisticated than he'd expected. Internet access was widely available, and most mundane jobs were automated. That's, uh, all great. But what is the adventure of a lifetime? Galquat quipped, earning a few snickers from the listeners. Myrna waved his eye stalks in annoyance. Laugh all you want, but I got way more than I bargained for. The humans have a very different definition of adventure than us. To them, it means something along the lines of uh, actively trying to die. What do you mean, Balan? One of the younger members of the group looked rather confused. I don't see why any species would seek death. Myrna smirked. Well, actually, I don't know that they're seeking death. It's more that they're trying to get as close to death as possible without actually dying. Thrill-seeking, I believe, is their phrase for it. When humans talk about adventure, they don't just mean seeing interesting places. It's about doing stupid, dangerous things. They planned my schedule for me, and I'm amazed I got back here in one piece. They sent me a 4,000 meter up in a small plane on one of my first days there. I figured that we were just going to look at the terrain from a bird's eye view, but, uh, no, uh, 
The plane was to jump out of a perfectly good aircraft with nothing but a backpack. What? That's suicide, Roland gasped. I thought the same. But the human who was jumping with me insisted a piece of fabric would let me slow my momentum before I hit the ground. He claimed people had been doing this for a long time. I asked why anyone would do this. Tried to back out of it. He just laughed and said, Come on, man, it'll be fun. I didn't want to seem like a coward, and uh, I wasn't sure I had a choice anyways. I told myself that the Terrans probably wouldn't kill tourists. Uh, it would be bad for business, sir. Unfortunately, I said this out loud and the human commented, We don't, um, well, most of the time, at least. That was not reassuring. At any rate, I somehow made myself step out of the plane. The descent was so fast. As I was hurtling toward the ground, all I could think of was that this was the end. I'd never been so scared in my life. Meanwhile, the human was cheering and asked, Isn't this awesome? He told me to pull the cord on my pack, and I did. It actually worked. The fabric caught on the wind and slowed my fall. The landing was a bit rough, but I managed to stumble a little ways and stay on my feet. I was so relieved to be on solid ground again, but part of me wanted to do it again. The adrenaline coursing through my veins, my heart racing. I had never felt so alive. We did all sorts of wild things while I was there. After a while, you stop asking, is this safe? And you start asking, is this fun? Riding inflatable rafts down violet rapids. Going straight down a mountain on nothing but a pair of sticks. It was an experience. Kalkwak clapped his hands on Murmur's shoulder. Glad that you made it through. Sounds like that you are lucky to be here. I'm glad to be home. A smile stretched across Myrna's face. But I'd like to go back to Terra sometime. And I think you guys should come too. Things on the planet are never, ever boring. You get your money's worth. Sure, humans are a bit crazy. But you know what? I like them. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1473 Story number one It Looked Back Written by Chinto Ship's Lieutenant First Class Talek Carefully shifted around the fire With what he considered A reasonable amount of caution He was aware of what the fire was And what it could do Especially in such an uncontrolled situation As their recent ejection From a crashing interstellar spacecraft Yet the humans of the surviving crew had rallied in a surprising manner, collecting the dead and injured, scavenging equipment and material from the downed ship. And then they hastily began erecting a series of emergency shelters that, while crude, had allowed the survivors to remain off the ground and out of the planet's changing weather patterns. And then they had set about starting a fire. A fire that was uncontrolled and entirely absent of any containment facilities, Outside a small depression in the scraped dirt and a ring of rocks. It was madness in the extreme. But at the same time, the humans had done many mad acts since the crash. Glancing over at the small white orb with a bloody handprint and a frond of local grass, Dalek shifted his feathers in resigned irritation before he continued to move around for fire towards the watchpoint. Again... It was another strange thing the humans had initiated, 
but made sense given the predators out and about on this hell world that they crashed on. Ahead of him, the current survivor on watch knelt down at the edge of the firelight, stared out into the midnight darkness and made soft cooing and clicking noises. Crewman Thirkler asked Taylor, what are you doing? He questioned, causing the man to look up with a mad light in his eyes. That look alone had all his feathers stand up in alarm. He had seen that very look several times before the humans aboard the ship had done something stupid. Like the time that they had tried to leave the ship with nothing but a spacesuit with a long line of cord in an attempt to ride the ship through hyperspace. All the time that they had tried to link two ships into hyperspace drives together in sequence in an attempt to accelerate the ship to plaid. The fact that they were not on board a ship and were in fact on a hell world after crashing had him concerned about what madness the human would do when unsupervised during his night shifts. Talek was surprised when the crewman simply shushed him and turned back towards the darkness beyond the firelight and restored his soft cooing noises. I found a kitty, Taylor said in a soft whisper that seemed to fit between cooing noises before tossing a small slice of cooked meat that they had foraged out into the darkness. A, uh, kitty? Talek queried before a massive paw slightly larger than Talek's chest whisked out of the darkness and snatched the silver liver of meat off the ground before it disappeared back into the shadows of night. Staring out into the darkness, Grumman Third Cross Taylor smiled the same manic smile the humans were rapidly becoming known for as he sighed. I'm going to name you Snuffy, and you will be mine, he whispered into the darkness. Beyond the flickering light of the fire, the darkness stared back and began to purr. End of story. Story number two. Fear those who fear death. Written by Fox Corp. A human stands alone in a dark room, up to his knees in the blood of the fallen. In his hands, he holds a sword of red, blue, and green. Small chunks of alien flesh line the now down edge. His head, obscured by a dark visor, darts from side to side, scanning to see if anyone was left. In front of him, he hears a cry of pain that is quickly silenced by a swift jab of his sword. He heaves and wheezes, then promptly collapses to his knees. The room is suddenly filled with a blinding white light. A thunderous noise assaults the man's ears, and for many seconds the man is completely blinded and dazed. Now, unable to process his surroundings, the man is terrified. His eyes adjust, catching sight of thousands of fast glass panels overhead. Looking beyond the glass, he witnesses the largest planetary structure in the galaxy, the Grand Colosseum. He regains his composure and remembers where he is. It is here where thousands of the galaxy's most desperate come in search of fortune and fame. The human kneeling in the pit of carnage has just won. Through the land of his worst nightmares, he has arisen. Victorious, his sword more swift, temper more unhinged, mind more brutal. The crowd had gone completely wild, shouting piercing the air like thunder as the crowd celebrated and cheered on their once unknown brute of a man, kneeling in the blood of his enemies. The man could only weep, his emotions overcoming the adrenaline, the scale of his slaughter fully realized by him. He stood 
and extended his arms. The blood began to drain. Then the ground began to shake. The glass overhead began to retract. The platform he was on began to ascend towards the stands. As he got closer and closer, the crowd got louder and louder, until the sound of his applause muted even his own thoughts. The great marble and metal arches of the Colosseum glistened under the light of the planet's three stars. Faces filled with joy and bloodlust proudly reflected by the curved glass and metal streaking around them. He had done it. He had won. But how? The question sat in the air for what seemed like an eternity before Professor Ballon decided to finally elaborate. This man was by no means the most strong species in the arena, nor was he the smartest. The question plagued scientists for decades before more study was done into this new species. Puzzled and curious faces filled the room. Those who were capable leaned forward in their seats, each one eager to hear whatever miraculous answer would fill the mysterious void now overtaking their minds. To understand them, we must first understand the average species of the galaxy, more specifically, their evolution and culture. All eyes in the room focused on the professor, focusing on the outline of the biped in front of a gargantuan display. Chairs creaked and groaned as listeners strained closer to the professor's platform. Most of the galactic species are nocturnal, less spread it is roam, and food is more easily obtained. Darkness is safety, and the light is dangerous. In human evolution, the night is seen as more dangerous. Their eyes aren't adjusted to living in such conditions, and predators roam freely in the dark. Thus, they associate death with the dark, not the light, as we do. Puzzled looks darted across the room. One student even yelled out, What does that have to do with anything? Glad you asked. They evolved to avoid death more than they evolved to spread life. They are one of the only species in the galaxy to fear death. Gasps and surprise filled the room. As you know, most cultures saw death as a great innovator and shaper of progress. It was revered and loved by nearly every civilization that was vulnerable to it. Humanity, however, feared it to the point of insanity. Their brain is wired completely for self-preservation. In a violent situation, their rationality goes away, completely replaced by a primal fear of death. When the human fought against the aliens in that arena, he was aided by a brain hardwired to deal and thrive in such an environment. The confusion in the room cleared, replaced by a deep intrigue. Tell us more. Yes, of course. This was not the only reason. Fear of death alone didn't get that human through the fight. Its intelligence in combat helped out a lot as well. The human brain has evolved to cope with extreme situations. They have been known to survive and enjoy almost any experience other species would be mortified by. Human culture is geared towards violence, and they actually used to fight in colosseums just like the one of today, thousands of years ago. The professor paused for a moment to take a long drink of water, then pausing to gather her composure once more, and promptly speaking again. To this day, violent sports and games are common amongst the human population. This man was training for fighting at the Colosseum since birth. He was biologically designed to come out on top. Remember, this is if you are to remember only one thing from today. If you ever question why, for the last 20 years, not a single human gladiator has lost to a non-human opponent, realize that they are hardwired to kill you and will shut their morality down to do it in the most efficient way possible. I believe if any race is going to outlive and outshine the rest, my bet 
is on the humans. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1474. The Markets of Ashrilly Prime, written by Grenadier42. The open market on Ashrilly Prime was in full swing as the hot red sun beat down upon the tops of the tents, stalls, and patrons. Those not used to the blistering heat of the desert sun walked around with head wraps, cooling fans, and even in some cases, full environmental suits as they shopped for spices, luxury clothes, foods, and other goods to satisfy whatever their heart desired. The capital city of Asni stood towering and glistening in the background. The setting sun reflected in burnt oranges off the glass, billboards, and trees that covered the ancient city. My lone human wandered through the market, pushing easily past the throngs of other buyers and sellers, attempting to haggle down to a fair price for this knockoff. He had wrapped a brown cloak over the top of his head, giving him a hood and a measure of protection from the sun. It also gave him more of a sense of anonymity, though his graying hair, dark brown skin, and brown eyes would not have made him stand out any more or less than any other species present. After several rows of walking, he turned suddenly and moved into one of the older, more permanent areas of the market. Here stalls are set up into tall buildings with multiple layers of shops and walkways open to the air. He navigates easily through the throngs, passing by criers, living billboards, and other fancy light shows attempting to draw his eye. It isn't until he gets to a shop selling discount hypercoils for an off-brand truck rig that he stops and seems to consider his options. He steps into the stall, setting off a small bell announcing his presence. A grizzled old Kandari looked up from reading a paper and blinked his four eyes in surprise. His mouth slowly broke into a wide grin, his feeding tentacles moving out of the way to display pointed teeth. Arno! Arno, is that you, you old bird? He laughed joyously, moving around behind the counter to get towards the folding axis. Opening up the counter, he waddled around, moving awkwardly in his moisture suit. He extended out two of his arms and embraced the human in a huge hug. What is it, Peter? Five years? Uh, I thought that you'd been given your body to salt. Nana grasped in Kendari's arms and held him at arm's length, smiling before removing his hood. I'm not yet that old, squid brain. The Kendari laughed again before patting Anna on the back and motioning for him to come around to the back. Going back through the counter axis, he moved aside a display cloth and typed in a code on a revealed keypad. A hidden doorway swung open, revealing a room lined with cushions of varying shapes and sizes, as well as a large glass tank filled with steaming water. In the center stood a vase-like structure with various pipes and cords attached to it. Gather, sit, smoke with me, the Gandhari said. It has been too long to get straight to business. Arno smiled. Agreed, Callus. Agreed. He followed him into the room and took a seat on the cushions as Callus slowly and awkwardly got out of his environmental suit and climbed into the water tank. He sighed with contentment, his tentacles and arms treading the water easily as he settled into a comfortable rhythm. After a few moments, he reached over and began fiddling with the central device before finally pulling off one of the tubes 
and handing it to Arno. To your health, he said with another broad smile. May your skin never dry out, Arno said with an equally large smile. And the two quickly fell into a small talk, discussing matters of little importance like old friends sometimes do. Unfortunately, as is customary with all meetings that are not quite by chance, Callus began to eye Arno suspiciously. He knew that men didn't return from the salt without having found a new purpose, or, more worryingly, rediscovered an old one. Arno, Callus finally said during a lull in the conversation. What are you really doing here? Arno sighed heavily. He pulled on the smoker once more before replacing the mouthpiece and leaning back into the pillows, all while exhaling the thick cloud of sweet-smelling smoke. He stayed still for another few moments before he looked over at Callus. Revulets of worry and concentration spread across his face. I need a butcher, Arno said quietly after a smoke had already begun to clear. Callus barely kept himself from leaping out of the tank and strangling the other. What are you doing, Arno? He hissed loudly. You're retired. Yes, I'm retired, Arno said angrily, not even looking towards the old Kandari. I got my last payday, and I went to a lovely tropical planet on the outer systems to hide. He waved his arms around, seemingly tracing an image only he could see. Huge orange trees floating across a blue sky with exotic women serving me fancy drinks with little umbrellas. Arno looked over at Callus. His eyes started to glisten. I can't get their faces out of my mind, Callus. I see them. The ones I couldn't afford or couldn't get to in time. Begging and pleading every time I laid down to sleep. He wiped furiously at his eyes for a moment. I can't even get a proper wife, Callus. I see their faces. Everywhere. Callus slowly climbed out of his tank and moved over to sit in the pillows beside his old friend. He pulled on the smoker, exhaling clouds of smoke before passing it over. Arno took it and did the same, and the two passed it back and forth a few minutes in silence before Callus finally asked, What changed? I was in a bar, Arno said quietly, inhaling the smoke, and a woman approached me, nice, pretty, human, all the right checkboxes. But you're paranoid, Callus said, taking the mouthpiece. Twenty years looking for those marks will do that to you, Arno said bitterly. She had one all right, the pleasure one, Pandalex. Callus hissed, a sound made more unsettling as his skills flipped open in a threat response. Yeah, Arno said, them. He took back the mouthpiece and inhaled again, breathing out as he talked. She was, um, gone, just meat and bones. I did what I could, but the black cells caused the assembly problems for a reason. Callus took back the mouthpiece. What do you want from me, Arno? I'm old, Arno said after a moment's thought. I can't fight like I used to. The black cell showed me that much, he muttered. Barely got out of there before he rubbed his eyes and looked at Callus. I do have one thing, though. Money. Lots of it. More than I can reasonably spend in my lifetime. You're looking to buy? Callus asked, confused. Buy and free, Arno said. I can get one or more out, Callus. One more, and then I'll have done all I could. Callus hummed to himself. A sound Arno felt reminded him of whales back on Earth. It was a high, squeaky, and yet deep and reverberating all at the same time. 
Nelskalis hummed. He stood back up and began patching back to the environment suit. He seemed to be refusing to look at Arno as he dressed before he suddenly turned back. You humans and your passion. What? Arno asked, confused. You're too passionate, Callus said as he finished closing the water seal clamps of his suit. You cannot stop the leave well enough alone. You must always push, push, push. Never accept the job that is finished. Now, hold on, Anna said, starting to rise to his feet before Callus interrupted him. Do you know how much you saved, Arno? Callus said, his tentacles flailing around in frustration and anger. Thousands, thousands owe their lives to you, and yet you come in here crying like an eggling because you didn't save more. Who do you think you are? Arno sat still, half of in his feet, and stared at his friend who seemed to be expecting an answer. He moved his mouth for a moment before muttering, Well, um, I am... Um, Callus snorted, exactly. Even you don't know. So you must keep finding purpose. Such a human trait. He glared down at Honor for another moment before his expression softened. And he sighed. You want me to find a butcher? Fine. There is this play tonight. A human one thanks to the shrilly love for your tragedies. So I should have no trouble finding you some meat. Thank you, Callus, Anna said, finally rising to his feet. He dug around in his pockets for his credit chip before handing it over to Callus. There should be more than enough, he said. I'll buy what I can, Callus said. But you must stop for both of our sakes. Anna smiled weakly, but then nodded and left the building and returned to the streets. The sun had just finished setting, and the lanterns had been lit. The Ishrilly still used old fire and paper lanterns for their markets, and so the streets were lit by an orange glow of thousands of lights strung above and along the streets. Arno smiled. They had always reminded him of Japanese lanterns back on Earth. He went down the steps and followed the crowd who were on their way to the theater to see the night's entertainment. The play was Oedipus Rex, much to his surprise. If he didn't know better, he would assume that Callus had sent him down here intentionally to warn him about the dangers of pride. However, he also knew that Callus did not fancy human drama, feeling that it often involved too much blood and not enough flow of life. He smiled to himself at the thought as the play concluded, applauding with the remainder of the huge crowd as the actors bowed in appreciation. He was feeling a bit better about himself and his life when he returned to Callus's shop. He went inside, expecting to see Callus there with another person, but instead found the storefront empty. Concerned, he moved his hand to the bolt pistol he kept concealed in the small of his back. The visit to a butcher can be dangerous if you are not a normal customer, but Callus had been buying and selling meat for years. He mostly did it to maintain contacts with the slavers proper who he would sell out to the assembly for even more bounties. Arno sometimes wondered how he kept sane with everything he'd seen. Pushing his way into the back room, Arno stopped and stared in surprise. Callus's back was to him, and in front of him, Arno saw four small children of varying species. He took his hand away from his back and nervously said, Callus! Callus turned around, a smile on his face as he clapped his hands together. Oh no! Just in time! Allow me to introduce you to your new... Um, he hesitated. Family. Arno approached slowly, seeing the eyes of the four children looking up at him expectantly. 
he could see in their eyes they were not fully broken. Either the drugs or the beatings had not yet taken full effect. Gallus, he asked, still nervous. What is this? You wanted to save one more life. I give you four, Gallus said, pretending to be hurt. And all you can do is ask me, what is this? Like you are confused. Gallus, Arna prompted. You're a human, Gallus shouted indignantly. Your species is well known for taking in and raising anything. You will bond with any species, even the ones you cannot communicate with. Plus, he smiled conspiratorially, you did mention that you were having trouble with your retirement. Arno put his hands on his face, pushing his fingertips into his forehead as he tried to process what was happening. So, you brought me children? No, Callus said, his face finally growing serious. I bought you a family. I bought you four children that should have a parent rather than a master. One that understands where they came from and what issues they possess. Callus, Arno said again, his face falling. You know I don't... I know nothing, Arno, Callus said, waving his hand to silence him. Except that you need something else to save. This, he pointed to the children, is a lifetime of saving in front of you. Four children who need you and only you. Four children who just wanted to live a normal life before it was taken from them. His frown slowly turned into a smile again as he pulled out the credit chip. Plus, I already spent the money. Honor frowned again, looking between Callus, then the children, then Callus, and then the children again. Callus, waving the now probably empty credit chip, and the children staring up at washed confusion and hope. And the ludicrousness of the situation finally hit. He began to laugh. He laughed long and hard doubling over as he clutched his belly before falling on the floor. He lay there for several long minutes, crying with laughter, before he finally calmed himself down. Rather than standing, he just got onto his hands and knees and gently crawled to sit in front of the children. Looking up at them, he whispered with a smile, Hello, my name is Arno Ejinlenko, but you can just call me Arno for now. I hope that we can be friends. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1475. Story number two. The interview, written by Phil at the game. Excerpts are taken from the interview with board member Itkazayu of Planetary Dispute Council. Interview. And welcome back. And thank you, Rikorora, for explaining how the Planetary Dispute Council arbitrates planet ownership between two parties. We are continuing our interview with board member Kuskutkua. We would like to start on the controversial ruling by the council. Until last week, there has been a 50-50 split as to whether or not the humans should be allowed to settle on the recently discovered planet. When board member Jules retired and you took her place, everyone assumed that you would be continuing her steadfast vote against humans settling on a new planet. Why then, may I ask, three days ago, did you vote for the humans? Board member Kitkazua's antennas drooped in a slight. Uh, why, I, I had no uh, reason not, not to allow the humans access uh, to, to a, a new world. Because of how the humans behave, everyone knows the temperament of the humans. They are quick to violence, barbaric in many of their practices. There are many stories of humans fighting each other just for sport. And let's not get into their choice of entertainment. 
I've read that one of their most famous movies is about a man going about killing other men just because someone killed his pet, uh, dog, I believe. I believe I've seen said movie. I don't think the, the reviewer understood what the, the movie was getting across, but never mind. I've seen much of the humans. I'm very old compared to someone like you. I was here before the humans, and I will be here when they become seen as uh, just another species. How can you say that? I've seen the statistics of crime and violence in areas where humans are prevalent. How can we accept a people so backward and barbaric? I have seen those statistics too. I was worried about that too until I looked into the crimes. Half of the crimes are the humans misunderstanding a culture's do's and don'ts, like Anzenor and the law against eating and walking around. My kind eats and walks around. I can think of at least two dozen species that have no problems with that. The only difference is that most of us has training in different cultures. Humans don't have that benefit. As for violence, they too misinterpreted. Most of the instances of violence have been in defense of another person. Granted, some of the times it was a misunderstanding. But humans are quick to come to others' aid if needed. But violence is not the best option. A dialogue is so much better. Dialogue is what civilized galaxy is based on. So much conflict has been avoided thanks to everyone's willingness to stop and talk. None of the galaxy's problems have been solved through violence. Board member. Antenna stood erect in anger. None! I know you are not very old by my standards, but have you forgotten about the Grong? Have you forgotten that my homeworld was bombarded by them? Well, the galaxy tried to get them to talk. And when you finally got them to say anything, they said that they don't talk to their food. Have you forgotten that when the galaxy finally got off its collective asses, you couldn't stop them? You couldn't stop them zip to zip. You had to bore them to even have a chance. No one was able to effectively do so. Then the humans volunteers. They volunteered something no one was willing to do to risk knowing of the casualties. The humans have one of the smallest populations of the known interstellar races. They knew that they were going to face huge losses, but the galaxy was in danger. And someone had to step up. That they did. It has been almost sixty years and the humans have only just recovered from their losses. They may be willing to be violent, but they try to do it only for the right reasons. Last year, what happens again? A threat appears, fabricated, I must add, but as soon as we asked, they were willing to risk it all for the sake of the galaxy. We were just lucky, the Hamir, are easily impressed by big warships. Those Volpanese have proven to be talented in the medical field. It would have been a staggering loss if we had never gotten to know them. If you still think that humans don't deserve a new world, I feel that you have allowed yourselves to be blinded by your prejudice. They have earned it, 
I will continue to support them in this. The board member unfolds his snakes and leaves the interview. End of story. Story number one. Fireworks, written by Weirdo5255. Outside my window, there was a muffled explosion. Looking up to the sky, I leaned back on my haunches. Humans really didn't like explosions. But then, it was unification day for their planet. I suppose some merriment was in order. Already dark outside, I glanced at the timepiece. Even after having been on Earth for ten orbits around its primary, I hadn't gotten used to the shorter days. About two-thirds of the length of those of Yurnek. It was just enough to throw off my sleep patterns. And I was adjusted. The newest batch of delegates and their broods were still adapting. Marching out of my office, the human receptionist Clara looked up from her computer terminal. You done for the day, Tarnan? I nodded or used with my approximation of it for her benefit. My head being fixed in place, all I could do was bend at the human equivalent of the waist. I am. You're going out to celebrate. I might stay to brood, although I loathe to give the youngsters any more of that sugar your culture favors during these events. They did not sleep for nearly four days last time. Ah, but they were so cute. Do do not have to deal with them as they grow. She laughed. Maybe not, but still cute, though. I spun my photoreceptor, opening the skin around the circumference of my head, letting in the light all around me for a moment. Humans had eyes fixed in front of them, which, with the ability to move both their eyes and necks, was no hindrance. But mine were fixed in a ring around my head and brain. Small flaps of skin in place to protect them and allow me to concentrate when needed. Still... Despite my eyesight being far worse than the human's, I could see Clara hesitating. It had taken me a long time to pick up a human body language. It was very subtle, but analyzing it was useful during negotiations. Do you need something, Clara? I asked. The reports aren't done yet, sir, and I'm only halfway through them. Can I turn them in tomorrow? I, I have a date. Her voice pitched up and quickened at the end of a sentence, and it took me a moment to decipher it. You did not request this night off. She shook her head, her skin turning red, now a sign of embarrassment rather than mirth in humans. I wasn't planning on having a date. My friend set me up. I stomped my hoof on the floor, an equivalent to a human chuckle. Yes, but I need them by tomorrow night, before transmission time. Go and woo your mate. Her blush deepened. Thanks, Terman. Make sure you feed those youngsters some sugar. She grabbed her bag and moved down the corridor at a speed that was for a human rather rushed. I stomped my foot again and leaving the official wing of the embassy and walking outside, I approached a small abode that was my brood's nest, or house as the humans call them. The embassy was old enough that when it had first been built, the space it took up on the outskirts of the city had not been an issue. Now though, the sprawling compound was in the heart of the city. Some didn't like it, but I enjoyed the energy it gave everything. Humanity had been an ally for over 300 cycles by this point, and were the only other sentient race that we had encountered, despite both our fleets having investigated over 500 systems. We were most likely long-lost genetic cousins, considering the proximity of our two worlds in the heavens and the similarities in form. 
Whose planet had originated life was still in debate amongst the scientists, but for the major populace, it hardly mattered. Both my species and humanity had been overjoyed to find a kin amongst the stars. The youngsters burst forth from the nest before I could open the door, my mate behind them already ready to leave and the compound, judging by the modified human attire that she was sporting. I was due a change of garments as well. The traditional robes I was wearing would be hot and cumbersome amongst the crowds in the streets. Everyone ready to go? I asked. Inton stamped both of his feet and his photoreceptor narrowed. I want cotton candy. Cotton candy and maybe, if you behave and have only one, I said. Inton looked disgruntled for a moment but waved side to side a moment later, an affirmation. I looked at Gurin. Anything you want? I asked her. I want to fire off an explosive, she said. I frowned. I had thought the proclivity for using explosives as forms of entertainment had been exclusive to humanity. You want to set off an explosive? I asked. The firework? insisted Grillin. I looked up at my mate. She's been begging all day, said Denrin with a sigh. I looked down at the youngster. I will consider it. My offspring wanted to play with explosives, and I was seriously considering letting her do so. I had been on Earth for far too long. I would have to test the firework first, make sure that it was safe before she could do one. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1476 Story number one. They sing into the void, written by Lords of Jew. It's a dull, empty piece of space. The western spiral off. Nothing happens here. Not unless it's planned, prevented, and plotted out in excruciating detail. And that's how it worked. And worked well. For 15,000 cycles. Utter, complete, plans. And in the dark, from no, aimed at nothing in particular, we heard them as they began to sing. They were not singing for us. They sang for themselves. To calm their nerves. To remove their fear. To steal their soul. To bolster their flagging morale. To boost their spirits. And to make the last mad frantic dash. To clear their hellscape of a world. They sang to each other. Calling on their own to spread your wings. A call to take to the heavens and pierce them. To fly behind the world's veneers and rise higher than ever before as a species. And they continued sing. This time they raised their voices in joy, triumph, and congratulations. They fought amongst their own kind for an interminable walls, and still they persevered. They were believers in the one true faith, and its sole doctrine was this. Don't Stop us now. This was fuel to their fortunes. It ran their ship, streamlined every choice, and blasted through every possible barrier. Because they could still sing. And they sang on further still. Their first ever encounter with sapient life outside of their own was marred with destruction. Dark Lord. The fight was terrifying, with debris fields the size of planetoids flooding the space lanes with dead and rotting hulks, both once living 
and always dead. Their songs did not cease though. They sang in mourning. They sang of loss, of pain, of confusion, to find a meaning to it. To see an end somehow, any way they could. Just to make it stop hurting. To have lost so much, all they could do was continue forward at the same speed. Tempered now with slowly chilling resolve. They sang about being the chosen few, the hammer to fall, cosmos. They sang even more. When next they met a menace which stood in their path, the songs were raised and the pitch was fervent prayer. Now the blockade would withstand them long enough to verify the truths as they knew them, that they were the righteous in their choice, that fate cast them as the chosen few to make them whole anew. They sang of being good company. And then they smashed through a flotilla of individual blockades, each one capable of withstanding a rogue moon. They went through them like a burst of ionized gas through a pail of water and rose as gods. Nothing slowed them, not even as they stripped the enemy dead and dying of their fuel, drive systems, and weapons, leaving naught but hooks behind them. They did not stop, because they were still singing in the dark, bleak void. Then they heard the single thing which stilled them entirely. The voice of a league of league of peoples oppressed, ruined, left to fend for themselves in the wake of renewed attacks, by angry warlords of ruined futures, empty hopes and bellies, the song of mourning of the end of things. It was our collective voice. We sang into the dark because we could do nothing else. And then we heard them, the echoes ringing from a thousand points of light around the system. And the skies, which were night so long, became as day, ship after ship landing and providing delivery, healing us, feeding us, raising us up not to our feet, but to their shoulders, then above them. We were elevated to their equals and accepted, because we sang into the darkness, and it struck their hearts. And now the deny, you may look outside your collective perimeters, all across this, this eastern spiral arm, and survey what you have found awaiting on your doorstep. The tens of thousands of shuttles, skiffs, cargo haulers, and wreckers, all dragging their weight, or more in rocks, asteroids, and stellar debris, each one crewed by the maniacs of the songs in the darkness, all readied to execute sharp turns on demand, freeing payload after payload aimed at your core worlds. And behind them, the millions more who heard their song and are all coming for you. Can't stop us now. We sing now, all of you deny, and it is not a mournful dirge. For we 
are joyous in our duties. We will rock you. End of story. Story number two. What do you do if you run out of ammo and there's still killing to be done? Written by HLS810. Edouard Delay was a long way from home. He had been aboard a transport ship bound for the Pinnacle Alpha in the Pinnacle system when they suffered catastrophic failure of their FTL drive, not unheard of, which had forced the crew and passengers to take to the emergency cryostasis evacuation pods. Being put into suspended animation for as long as it took to be rescued was better than dying of dehydration while adrift in space. His pod ended up drifting through interstellar space and crashed-landed on a underdeveloped Class VII temperate world. That is how Edward came to be on Alolololo in the Uliulul system, a Yule colony world. The Yule were a semi-aquatic race of cephalopods with the propensity for engineering who had recovered his pod from the ocean. This particular colony world was essentially one large wave farm. Converting the motion of the waves into electricity to charge huge batteries for industrial use. Due to its remoteness, it was barely utilized, meaning there was no regular transport that could get him home, and it would be a while before the human Commonwealth space fleet could get a shuttle out to pick him up. In the meantime, he passed the time by talking to the Yield engineers. They were an odd bunch by human standards polite, but entirely devoid personality. The only exception who interacted with Ed with any regularity was Yolol. Yolol was a curious young apprentice Yol, with an affinity for mechanisms and a morbid fascination with the destructive inventiveness of this warlike barbarian from a class 10 world. They talked at length about weapons designs, it turned out that the Yule Guild Union, their version of an interplanetary government, had adopted a form of kinetic pulse technology, refined it to the point they deemed perfect, then rejected any attempt to refine or replace it. The prodigious variety of weaponry that humans had produced was a great interest to the inquisitive student. Ed had regaled Yulol of the longbows, trebuchets, firearms, rockets, flamethrowers, railguns, and diamond monofilament anti-personnel bolo launchers. Basically, warfare through the ages. All of these examples of previously unknown forms of weaponry had inspired the impressionable Yil into working on his own project. Edward tried to provide as much information as he could remember and help troubleshoot the problematic designs but was ultimately kept in the dark. One day while Edward was in the store closet that had been converted into his cabin, chewing on a fillet of rubber fish, that's what he called it through the eel creature that was apparently a local staple, it tasted like boots and was full of protein. He received a hollow message from his squid buddy. Good quality greetings, my friend. The project is complete. Meet me on Pier 5 at your earliest convenience. Ed made his way through the few air-full tunnels of the underwater facility to the surface-level access port. He opened the weird handle of the hatch and emerged to the welcome sensation of soft sea spray and the boom 
of breaking waves. The arms of the massive facility branched out over the sea surface, and from those arms branched out even further arms, lined with flotillas and buoys that bobbed up and down in the rolling waves. Yalol was on one of the wide gantries that ran the length of the main arm, stood with his long prehensile tentacles coiled underneath for support, relying on its flimsy cartilage to keep the bulbous, blubbery head upright. Ed's boots caused the gantry to rattle, alerting his friends as to his presence. The eight-foot-tall, greenish-gray Lovecraftian entity with six eyes of various sizes turned as he approached. You finished it. I have indeed. I have set up some targets for you to test it on, said Yulel from somewhere within the mass of wriggly limbs. Ed eagerly took the proffered gun. It was heavy, even for him, and it seemed as though Yulel had taken all of his ideas and tried to fit them all into one weapon. Yulel gestured at the weapon. It is a multifunctional weapon made from the alloy that negates detection of energy discharge. I have reduced recoil to the tolerable limit for my species, so it should be negligible to you. Yulol pointed a tentacle at the core. It features a rechargeable battery, 3,000 shot capacity of class 10 rated compressed kinetic pulses with burst option of 10 to 100. It also features a variety of other fire modes. The automatic target recognition and acquisition system can be set so that the first round impacts as tracked as a beacon for guided shots. Ed selected the setting, aimed it at a metal plate, and popped up some distance down the gantry, and fired a short burst, causing all subsequent shots to home in on the original one's impact, continued Yulol. Sure enough, Ed's casual shots had all surprisingly had a tight grouping. On the side of the mount is a grade 9 particle cannon with 3 shot capacity. But I will thank you for not testing that one here. Ed sagged his shoulders in disappointment. It has a telescopic barrel that can be extended and it can be converted into a long-range rifle capable of delivering a round accuracy. Up to 1.5 nulliolol, I mean, uh, <clears throat> 63 mile. With a click and a clack, Ed modified the gun. If you can aim for that target from Pier 4, you'll all gesture. Ed zeroed in on the target and found the sights to be effortlessly intuitive. He put a round through the marked target with ease. Twist this bit and it has a reloadable net launcher for non-lethal takedowns, with an integrated electroshock device to temporarily disrupting muscle functions without causing significant injury. I've only been able to give it the capacity of 4, but... If you want more, I would have to sacrifice the final feature. With a turn of the dial, you can utilize the adjustable plasma stream discharge valve with a custom-sized canister. It can fire a concentrated blast of superheater plasma up to 30 meters. Or, if you prefer, it can saturate a wide area with 15 meter range and flaming plasma. Ed pointed the weapon at the first target and drenched it with a blue fire. He may have cackled maniacally. Who's to say? Apparently able to discern the companion's approval, Yilal said proudly. I was hoping to market it as a replacement for the Odinson Mark III infantry coal gun rifle. What? That's a Brit gun, Ed objected. You can't go putting this in the hands of Brits. It belongs in the hands of Americans. 
Do you think that they would be interested in my creation? Yellow asked. Oh, hell yeah. Ed said, with a gleam in his eyes and a grin on his face. Suddenly, he frowned. Where the hell do you put the bayonet? End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1477. Story number one. Why them? Written by underscore sky underscore underscore. Every civilization inevitably has its great individuals. Renowned scientists, generals, spiritual leaders, artists, or otherwise crucial figures. Members of their race who changed how their collective sees the world. However, every race by default also has its idiots. And I am not just talking about mass murderers, hardened criminals, etc. Nor do I wish to insult any individuals who were born with substantially deficient intellect. What I am actually talking about are the members of the civilization who do something so obviously stupid without being able to comprehend exactly how much they will end up screwing everyone else. Case in point, myself. You see, the universe is a rather interesting place, filled with countless life-bearing planets, and thus littered with civilizations native to them. However, technology and science have their limit. Can you travel faster than light? Well, not by much, only around 314 times faster. That is the theoretical limit. However, you can communicate instantaneously so not everything is lost. But the reality being what it is, my species decided to establish Universal Internet. Literally, a grand project which had noble intentions, allowing communication between every single sapient being in the universe. Who knows, if we put our minds together, maybe we can manage to break the limits of reality, stop the heat death of the universe, rewrite the laws of physics themselves. For billions of years, we've been held back by the cold grip of stagnation. Every device, as good as efficient as possible, no room for any significant progress. If there was any way for us to find a crack in it, it was to unite our best and brightest from every civilization to truly establish universal internet. However, I was an idiot. Traveling for millions upon millions of years across the universe can be uh, boring, to say the least. And I was really young, idealistic, when I joined the project. Now, it did not seem as grandiose as before. Naturally, I never imagined that me having a little fun would backfire like that. So, when I came across this primitive humans, instead of opening a proper communication channel, welcoming them to the grand family, etc., I decided to troll them. The primitives still did not have a working fusion reactor. How much help could they possibly be in breaking the reality itself? Their internet, while really fucking fun, held no revolutionary blueprints. 
so there wouldn't be any harm anyway. My plan proceeded at breakneck pace, slowly scaring them into believing the universe is some horror-ridden place instead of a freaking utopia threat it realistically was. Fabricating stories about apex civilizations, which at first presents itself as welcoming and gifting the universal internet only to hack, take over, and exterminate unsuspecting prey. Me myself being the only astonishingly lucky survivor, running for my life, hiding wherever possible. Only now, in hindsight, I can actually see how utterly stupid I was. Also, before I left, I gave them all the data I had on every single piece of technology, feeling a little guilty for trolling them like that in the first place, yet confident that they would have figured out my little joke long ago before anything serious happened, even laughing themselves to it once they emerged into a peaceful universe. Yeah, it, it turned out that humanity does not share my sense of humor. Uh, not at all. Because of a few dozen thousand years later, while I was visiting some completely other galaxies, the universal internet was screaming about some invaders, which had taken over the Milky Way and were ravaging Andromeda. It turns out that when you hit all the end of technology, all of the ships look alike, mostly, as there is often only the single most efficient way to build things or to run your servers of virtual reality, etc. What, in turn, makes countless civilizations look like one. Especially when they all share the universal internet. What, in turn, explained why the humans were attacking everybody. Internet, it connects sapiens, except if they've been trolled the fuck out. You might wonder how it is to be the only one in the galaxy who knows what the feck is going on. Not so good. I'll personally testify to that. Not good at all. Did I come forward and admit my mistake? Tried to stop the shitstorm I caused? <laughs> Hell no! Do you know what happens to individuals responsible for the deaths of quintillion upon quintillions of sapient? No. Well, that virtual reality I mentioned, it can be used for many different sorts of things. Some of them rather unpleasant. Like burning alive while being forced to eat your crap for a few billion years. And then it's just the starter. Plus, uh, do I really strike you like somebody who is serious and responsible? <laughs> oh, but my conscience, yeah, about that. Well, um, I, I never really had one. My species was strange like that, plus, uh, remember the whole, uh, virtual reality punishment problem? Nah, thanks, but rather not. When others asked, do I know anything about these uh, humans? Hell no! Never saw them before. But you did pass through the Milky Way, was right? Uh, yes, but so did many others, and nobody saw them until they struck. And I have no idea why they were hiding this whole time. And I certainly 
do not know why they think we are evil, and do not even want to try and contact us, nor why every ship with free universal internet we send them is blown to smithereens, or um, why they refuse to use it. Who knows? They're strange like that. Savages attacking others without any provocation. We had to unite even more than before. What in turn now truly made us look like one single enemy from the human's perspective. As the war waged across the universe, a really bloody war at that, many wondered why the humans were not peaceful like every other highly advanced civilization. Considering that once the technology was able to satisfy every physical and psychological need of an individual species member's, there was no reason for conflict left. Why attack? Fight for resources which are plentiful in the universe and accessible due to FTL technology. Yet the human war machine pushed on and we pushed back. Eons passed and the once peaceful universe had its history rewritten by warfare. Never-ending conflict soon turning into the only thing anyone ever remembered. Old AIs replaced by new ones, casualties replaced by a constant stream of reinforcements. I was still alive somehow, due to the fact that I was never a military-grade asset. However, the war brought something unexpected. Progress. Small things at first, but it accumulated. With every single battle fought, every new struggle overcome, somebody came up with an idea or two which seemed promising. War, not peace, fueled the progress. The universe was maybe burning fleets, smashing each other, entropy taking over a bit by bit. But the stagnation existed no more. Machines and weapons deployed soon defied the reality. Trillions of years flew by as they were but mere seconds. Yet, our understanding of reality evolved too. The laws of physics, once seen as infinite and everlasting, were broken, molded to our own world. Time machine being one of them. And that was when my jig was up. The truth about what I had done relieved both the humans and my own civilization. But I was an elegant troll. It had to be done, I claimed. We were trapped in our utopia, forever sleeping, slowly floating towards the death of the universe. Look what happened to the other universes. We now have the technology to see all of them. All of them failed to survive. My voice vigorous. But now, now with the technology and knowledge which defies logic, we have no limits. No mistake too great. Everything wrong can be undone. All the dead can be brought back. Their suffering erased forever. Heat death of the universe. Nothing more than a story to scare the children. 
Eternity is ours to do with as we please. Then somebody asked why I chose humans to spark the war. What was so special? What did I see in them that made me think that they could take on the universe? And hold on. Hold on long enough to defeat the entropy itself. I had only one thing to say, because there indeed was a single reason I trolled the humanity in the first place. Humanity! Fuck yeah! My voice roared out. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1478 Story number one. Outbound, written by Provisional Rebel. Transcribed from the documentary Outbound Flight, The Battle of New Catalonia. Interview with Cole Thrax, High Marshal of the 16th Expansion Fleet. The Empire has never been one to shy away from conflict. We have subjugated worlds before. Although, I personally don't put stock in some of the horror stories of occupation. We are not cruel monsters from beyond the stars, like some primitives would paint us as. We were merely efficient, as this is the virtue upon which we stake our name. The efficiency we brought to every battle won us victory, time and time again. It wasn't until we encountered the humans that we met our match on the battlefield for the first time since the Unification Wars. At first, we thought the people of New Catalonia were merely primitives. We saw no gate in the system, after all. As we observed them from orbit, we assumed that it would be a simple matter of deploying a troop transport to install an imperial governor and deploy a barracks for an occupation force. This proved a fatal mistake on our part, given what we now know of the colony. They were a faction which had arrived on the planet on one of the human generation ships. Fanatics, as far as even the humans were concerned. Isolationists who were so driven to protect themselves from the ever-increasing tyrannies of their governments that they threw themselves into the void, seemingly without reservation. The actual landing was unopposed, of course. They couldn't have known that we were coming. To me and my staff, it seemed like another job well done and another world brought into the fold. It would be another few weeks until we were able to depart the system as more sections of the return gate were moved into position and the populace seemed uh, docile. Although we now know that they were seething in their underground we hadn't the faintest idea of that, and so we continued as efficiency demanded. We deployed judicator forces to bring imperial law to the people, and they seemed to quite naturally fall in line with it. How laws are, after all, fair. 
It seemed merely a formality, as only the most savage primitives lacked the foundational morals to adhere to them. Seeing no reason to stay and knowing our survey ships had completed their scans, we gave our final briefings to the governor and the fleet made its return to the core worlds of the Empire. We would return in three months with additional provisions and colonists. At least, that was the plan. Oh, we arrived exactly on schedule. I would have no other way. But as we moved into the system, we did not receive any transmissions from the surface. The city appeared empty from orbit, and uh, so, assuming the worst, I deployed half of my complement of marines. They quickly found signs of battle. The barracks had been overrun with stains of blood and some strange red fluid which we assumed had to be the human equivalent. The governor estate had been ravaged as well, again covered in the same signs of battle. After I ordered my men to begin securing the city for new colonists, the sporadic reports of contact came in. It was uh, difficult to understand. We fight as one securing a clear line between us and the enemy is the first step towards victory. The humans claim to fight in much the same way, but it's almost anarchy, as far as we could see. Small groups of humans would lie in wait, attacking from multiple angles and quickly dispersing into the surrounding area rather than stand and fight. It was... Uh, frustrating. But our numbers afforded us the advantage, and slowly we fought them into the more rural regions, where our troubles truly began. Behind every tree and blade of grass there seemed to be a rifle. Losses began to mount, especially amongst the officer corps. It seemed the humans had quickly begun to differentiate the leadership from the common soldier, and went out of their way to assassinate them at the outside of every battle. Barbaric! The new environment, however, did begin to allow me the opportunity to support ground forces without risking damage to the infrastructure of the city itself. Still, uh, without hardened targets, naval bombardment is ill-advised, and so weeks began to mount into months. Eventually, I felt the city was secure enough to deploy our colonists. This, of course, required another quarter of my marines to aid in their defense, along with a new contingent of judicators to keep order. It was troublesome, to say the least, but the planet could now become a fruitful expedition. Of these savages ambushed patrols, raided supplies from the colony, and generally made a nuisance of themselves. But uh, the subjugation of the populace was all but assured, given our vast resources in comparison to Catalane. It seems funny to me now that we could have been so stupid. They called themselves Catalan. Their city was New Catalonia. But I had become lax and overlook what seems to be such a glaring question now. For where is the first Catalonia? It seemed a trivial thing, until the arrival 
of what I now know was a human vessel from Earth. They hung in the void, seeming to assess the situation before attempting a directional message to the original colonial government center in their language. All we then knew was that this colony was not a home world. And given our fleet's overwhelming firepower at the time, we knew the best way to ensure domination of what was obviously a lesser evil. I ordered two frigates to move in to interdict the vessel. It seemed like it would be a quick fight. They seemed ill-equipped and began to maneuver away immediately in response to our deployment. But I knew that they had nowhere to run without access to a gate. There was a brief exchange as my men followed standard protocol, firing a warning shot past them as we attempted to order them to surrender. They ignored it. Obviously, they were cowards, prone to panic and run like those who had on the surface. But here, there is no fleeing into the wilderness like animals. The next shots were precise and did substantial damage to the aft engines. We closed the distance and the boarding parties were prepared. It was then that we got our first taste of what we had sown. The ship's energy readings began to fluctuate, and given their nature, as I viewed it, I had assumed it meant to detonate their core and attempt to destroy our frigates rather than surrender. A supremely inefficient act. So I gave the order to move to a safe distance. Then, as swiftly as it arrived, the vessel vanished. Without a gate... It was one of the only times in my career that I felt unsure of myself. Once our senses had cleared up the picture of what had occurred, we were shocked. Only the precursors had the technological ability to travel the stars without the gates, and we had never had a breakthrough in reverse engineering their arcane sciences. I felt fear creep into my blood. But I knew what was now required of us. I dispatched one of my frigates to gather reinforcements from the Empire. And I shifted my battle lines further out into the system. This would limit my ability to support ground operations against the insurgents. But obviously, the threat of a naval engagement far outweighed the possible losses. I had brought my people to war over some petty colony, a war that for the first time in my life, I lacked the conviction that I could win. I lost that war, then and there, for I had lost it inside my own head. The human's naval actions later would merely make my torment manifest. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1479 Story number two. The Smart Choice, written by Radius 55. The fleet appeared out of hyper, eight light minutes away from the local inhabited world, and promptly began accelerating. 
It was composed of 64 warships, each armored and shielded to withstand the absolute hull that was modern weapon systems. But no combat craft worth its salt could take a beating without being able to dish it out as well. And this fleet was no exception. The ships bristled with particle beams, coherent light projectors, plasma cannons, kinetic kill systems, and missile tubes. It was a force to be reckoned with, and it was bearing down on the human colony world at about 1% of the speed of light. With the sensors, the fleet could detect the panic their arrival had caused. Some of the merchant shipping common in the heavily trafficked trade route was fleeing. Other ships were staying in position, knowing their civilian-grade drives couldn't get them to the hyperlimit before they were caught. Of the two, the Admiral knew the latter group was likely smarter. These forces often executed crews of shipping that tried to run. Those that surrendered promptly merely had their cargo confiscated. And there were at least twenty stronger drive emissions lighting up. That would be the human picket force, drastically outgunned by the incoming fleet. They were taking the better part of valor and escaping on the reciprocal heading. Their powerful drives would be able to keep them out of alien fire. This development disappointed the fleet admiral, but not overmuch. After all, the primary target was securing the lucrative trade world, not engaging the human fleet and it appeared that they would capture at least 120 merchant hulls in the process. The Overmasters would be pleased. Entering orbit near the planet's primary transshipment station, the fleet broadcasted their demands for surrender. A few automated laser platforms opened up in response and were smashed with contemptuous ease. For good measure, they began jamming any communication band that showed activity save the few reserved for fleet broadcasts. It was that moment an officer on sensor watch signaled to the Admiral's attention. It seemed that the human fleet had reversed course. They had found their courage, after all, and their complete destruction would only boost the Admiral's prestige. He ordered the fleet to change course to meet the humans well away from any traps they may have laid near orbit. Threat warnings bled on the flagship's bridge an instant before the first beam struck. More followed in rapid succession, and the Admiral could now see the traces of the flock of missiles fired from the... the freighters? He knew it shouldn't be possible. He knew it as he ordered return fire, and the beams meant to melt through meters of battle steel at ranges of several light seconds, tore through the unarmored hulls of the freighters. My paper... But the damage had been done. The beams had been roughly installed throughout the merchant ships in the twelve hours since the enemy had been sighted, knocked out of shields throughout the fleet. The missiles, hard on the heels of the energy weapons, didn't know nor care that their launch platforms had been turned to scrap. They had their targets and had been fired from well inside the standard point defense envelope. Ships had only a few seconds to fire last-ditch volleys of countermeasures before the sledgehammer hit home. The Admiral was stunned by the carnage that had unfolded in front of his very eyes. 
Moments before, his fleet numbered 64 combat-ready warships. Now, it was a mere 30, all of which were damaged, some to the point that they were little better than floating hulks. The merchant fleet, on the other hand, was gone. Sensors only spotted a pair of escape pods, one quite obviously venting atmosphere. But the human fleet, bearing down on the now-damaged and depleted fleet, he had to decide on a course of action. There was still a chance of fighting through the craft. The humans were outnumbered and still marginally outgunned, even with the battle damage. Then he considered what had happened. The attack had not been planned far in advance. That much was certain. The beams were from a variety of models. An examination of the sensor records showed a crude mounting of the systems. Jamming should have made any effective remote targeting impossible, and the time-critical nature of the modification spoke against automated and non-local control. Anyway, then he thought of a pair of escape pods, then examined a portion of the sensor's speed more carefully. Minding what he was looking for, it only took a few seconds to reach decision. The Admiral straightened and told his officers to cut all power to offensive systems and transmit their surrender. If the traders of the species were willing to co-sign themselves to certain deaths rather than simply turning over their ships, he could see no profit in going up against those whose duty it was to fight and die for their people. End of story. Story number one, A Call to Judgment, written by Rientific Theory. There are many in the assembly who would dismiss the accomplishments of humanity. Who would point to their mistakes and failings as though these were truly the moments that defined them? I cannot force you to see through their eyes to, as they say, walk a mile in their shoes. I can only make an appeal to reason and hope that I might convince you to throw open our doors and welcome them truly into the universe. There has never been a more varied species to sail the stars, one so broken into factions and groups, one so randomly aligned at times. They have been both monstrous and merciful, hateful and humble, capable of committing atrocities so repugnant that some members have abdicated their seats here tonight secure in the decision that they will never vote yes so long as they live. Yet, even at their most base, in the monuments of cruelty, there still burns an irrepressible empathy. The starving give their last piece of bread, the poor give their last dollar, the healthy give their lives. In the time that we should have been exploring their culture, we've instead been waylaid by talking heads, reactionaries decry their history, arguing that it would only be a matter of time until they destroy us. Some 
even going so far as to suggest that we knock a piece of orbital debris into their gravity well. As though a universe willing to commit genocide at a moment's notice would still be a universe worth protecting. We've been distracted from what they truly offer by the sensationalism of their history. Their greatest accomplishments overshadowed by their darkest moments. Moments that have been widely recognized and widely condemned. Moments that are taught to our children so that they may never repeat the mistakes of their forefathers. A bravery that we ourselves are unable to match. We sit up in a fortress in the sky, staring down at a frantic people desperate to survive, with technology that is beyond their reach, and we make as though to judge them. Our sociologists argue that their behavior is because they disregard the value of life, that they would only voluntarily end their own because they have no respect for it. They forget that we ever lived in a time where to live was to struggle and act as though these humans would have peace if they only just sat down one day and decided to. As though there are no other issues that drive them to the edges that they walk. There is a writer of theirs by the name of David Foster Wallace, who I think perfectly captured a true image of humanity. Not only for themselves, but for us as well. We look down on them from above, and we see them throw themselves headfirst into every problem that comes their way. We watch as they take incredible risks to solve issues that are nothing to us. We watch them fight and die and destroy one another, seemingly without end. The risks they take as they desperately claw their way forward are as alien to us as the technology we use to travel the stars would be to them. There is a fire behind humanity that is consuming everything that they know and care for. They are not any less terrified of the risks that they take. Their reckless attempts to master technology that should be decades beyond their reach. When they take a life, it does not impact them any less than it would us. From where we stand, gazing on them in judgment... We cannot understand the all-consuming force that drives them, that pushes them to do anything in order to protect and save some small part of the world around them, to make sure something remains for their children, for their friends, that they lash out in the wrong directions, that they make mistakes. It is not a failing of their species. It is simply a failure of their knowledge. They have faced down horrors we have never known and conquered a world so harsh as to have nearly winnowed them to extinction. We stand watching as they hurl themselves from the window of burning buildings and only wonder at how the terror of the fall does not face them. It does. In each one resides a deep and crushing terror that they will be the ones to fail that their leap will not bring safety 
and that those who rely on them will perish. We stand here with the means to extinguish the blaze that sears them, that forces them to take the plunge after plunge to buy just a little more time. And ask ourselves if it would not be better to fan that flame into an inferno. Perhaps they are not the ones who require judgment. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1480. Story number one. The Itch, written by Cranky Uncle Morty. Bull woke up in a mental fog with a strong taste of disinfectant in his mouth and a loud humming in his ears. He tried to open his eyes, only to see blinding, purplish light. Instantly, he became aware of the fact that he was completely naked and covered in some type of gel mist. What is this? What's going on? He shrieked as he slid into a nearby corner, trying his best to conceal himself. A few moments passed by as a mister hisses and sprays more gel. Stay calm, human pill. It was the ship's octopoid nurse, Gurgle. They suspect that you have been infected with the soon-suckered Dermalmites. You are lucky we caught them early enough. You won't likely lose more than 10 to 15 percent of your dermal layer. She peeped out in sing-song tone. She dealt with all of the healthcare for the humans on board because she taught herself to speak English and Spanish watching old human television shows. We are going to have you as ripe as raincoats in no time, puppy. Why do you think I have dermal mites? The exasperated engineer inquired, not in the mood to correct the absolute disaster of a colloquialism she tried to pull off. Your assistant Chuckle noticed the instinctive involuntary tearing of your epidermis after your visit to Sunka and managed to hit the panic button in time. Due to your status as a heavy world species, the protocol is to sedate you for your and our safety before the beginning of the treatment. You have been placed in a sterile isolation room. The treatment was starting to burn as the iodine smart gel tried to disinfect microscopic invaders that were not present, finding only human hair follicles. Bill managed to brace himself against the wall and start feeding his way closer to the intercom. Jerkle is a whoopsian. What does he know? Has the doctor run any tests? The three-foot-tall aliens looked like a Shetland pony, and a red panner had a drunken tryst and spoke like they were raised on a steady diet of amphetamines. They were not known for their brilliance, but their small size, low food requirements, and ability to go for three to four days without sleep made them essential in every engine room that could find one. Due to such high demand, many times captains would have to settle for one with the, say, uh, less than a stellar critical thinking skills. Jerkel was a marginal example at best. The assistant Jerkel suffered an attack of these very mites a few years ago, which is why he has those green fur patches. He was only trying to save your life, responded Gurgle. That really explains why his fur looked like someone attacked him with a paintball gun, and it never washed out. There is really no time to wait. 
Once she reached the state of involuntary epidermis tearing, the, the mites are getting ready to hatch and enter their airborne stage. You have some gelatinous crewmates. Do you want to risk their lives? I would expect you to be a responsible adult and accept your quarantine and uh, treatment. What do you mean by involuntary epidermis tearing? Bell began to feel around his body that he could not feel any tears or cuts that he did not expect. Working in an engine room was always hazardous, and he had a few nicks on his hands. I don't remember any of this. This is a slight effect of the anesthetic vapor compound. That one gave Bill the chortle. I'll turn off the ultraviolet lights and let you watch the video recapturing. She said with a smug air, I'll show you exactly how your cookie crumbled. When Bill opened his eyes, he could see Gurgle in the window wearing a jaunty little nurse's hat with a red cross on it, clearly copied from a World War I movie that she had seen, and flashing her stripy pattern of aquamarine and lavender, which roughly translated to, You don't want to test me. The video monitor to the left and just above the wall mounted speaker sounded a tone and started playing a video of Bill stepping off the transport pod and into the airlock waving to Chalkle and his mate Megatron cartoons from Terra's 1980s are insanely popular in the woobs, played during prime time as human animated dramas. As he began to speak to them, his left hand reached over to scratch the minor itch on his right arm, which was carrying an overnight bag. There, right there, the squeaked the octopoid nurse now flashing her dark blue ribbons of triumph and white bands of righteous indignation. He scraped off at least five micrograms of skin. Bull then watched as Churkel, white-eyed and panicked, shoved his mate back, sending her bowling over her tail and screaming in terror as he hit the emergency lockdown and sealed Bill in the airlock. He now vaguely remembered pounding on the glass and threatening to have Churkel stuffed and mounted as a footstool before passing out. How is Megatron? inquired Bill, genuinely concerned about the powder blue whoopsian. She often baked too many treats, and the extras always found their way to Bill and the rest of the engineering crew. Relatively unharmed, but she took there was enough to cause premature molting. Next time you see her, she will likely be a different color, and possibly another gender. She picked up a clipboard on her desk, the boys in weapons maintenance started a pool, and there are still a few spots open at 200 credits per slot. Uh, put me down for brown and submail. Bill switched to pleading tone. Listen, uh, you've got this wrong. I was just scratching an itch. Harmless irritation of the hair follicles. I saw your famous Terran movie, The Seven Year Itch, and at no point did humans scrape off their dermal layers. If they did not do this once in seven Terran cycles, I doubt your claims. You are pulling my feelers, Engineer Broski. Bill was exasperated, and the use of his last name was an indication that he would have to reach up the chain of command. Let me speak to the captain, Bill demanded, as a tuft of his beard fell to the ground. The captain of the Flaccid Rebuke, where reconditioned 30-year-old human military surplus ship, was the right head of the two-headed Talgorian male, Piz. Only 10% of the Talgorians had two heads, and the most of them left their home planet for fame and fortune to avoid double taxation as the two individuals. 
being a six-foot-tall furry ostrich with teeth and an extra eye on each head made them a relatively easy adjustment for most humans to work under. Puz was a fair and honest captain. Soon, however, it was Mitt. The left head was visible on the screen. The captain is busy, Engineer Brosky. Just relax and let the treatment do its work. You should be out of quarantine in about two weeks. It did not help that his left head was ship's doctor. It was at this moment Bill knew that he needed to weaponize the most dangerous tool in humanity's arsenal. Bureaucracy. Listen here, buddy, demanded the nude and increasingly hairless engineer. I do not have might. Scratching is normal human behavior. If you do not free me in this instance, I will contact the Terran Embassy on Sunka and file an emergency ID-10-T form from the ambassador. If you won't listen and free me, our law marines will. Terran law marines were the most feared of all humanity. Humans who are both fully trained marine combat troopers and lawyers registered with the Free Galactic Council. Most with onboard AI paralegals filing lawsuits for them mid-combat. They were the only humans that could shoot you and then sue you for interfering with their bullets freedom of association and for the firearms post-traumatic stress. The doctor was visibly shaken but demanded from the engineer, I want to free you, but how can you explain the reaction of your crewmate? Bill sighed and said, There's a fairly common human saying, uh, Never trust a green whoopsian. End of story. Story number two. A single reply written by a teller of tall tales. When we sought war with the human, it was, for petty reasons, unnecessary materials, unneeded land. But we, the Gorvan, we were greedy. We targeted a small outpost planet at the far reaches. It seemed simple enough. Arrive, broadcast the surrender message, and walk in. All routine. As we approached in our warships, we found the planet to have a title. Translator, what is the planet's name? I had asked. The translator seemed to hesitate before simply saying, Florida too. I'd scoffed and said, Broadcast the message. Broadcasting. The translator replied. I calmly waited for the small planet's reply. Eventually, the translator beckoned me over, warring in the clicks of his mandibles, as he said. They replied, If you want it, Come and take it. I barked a laugh and ordered the navigator to take us into the atmosphere. As we lowered, our troop carriers descended to the surface. I opened a display and watched the commander's bionic speed. The streets of the large city they had landed in were empty. Vehicles and detritus dropped like they had no owners. Through the camera, I watched as sputtering metal cylinder landed in front of the commander, who reached down and picked up the strange object to scan it. The sound of the explosion made me jump back as the feet darkened, switching to a ground troop's helmet as they took flight. As they rose to the air, the detritus and trash they had passed shifted. Humans, armed with large bore antique firearms, rose from the trash conceding them and opened up. 
Their combustion weapons created a racket as another feed went dark. He'd cycled through a few more empty feeds as I quivered where I stood. Eventually, the feed popped up, showing a lone commander's bionic speed as he threw down his weapons and surrendered to the group of six heavily armed humans, which translates a module spitting, What elite military force is this? The Golvan haven't been defeated in millennia. The human replied, and my translator in synced, Military force? We're just civilians. Didn't realize it'd be this easy. Anyway... My one to GTFO. The Marines are on their way. I slowly asked my translator, G-T-F-O? He gulped and said, Get the fusk out. I nodded and said, Do as they say. I don't want to meet these uh, Marines. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1481 the People You Meet, written by three ducks in a mad suit. The death I died was not a good one. I was having a lovely time, sipping on a $10 coffee with a beautiful woman and thinking exactly about how the night was going to end. It didn't take much imagination, just a glance at those bedroom eyes and the plunging neckline on that skin-tight little black dress was enough. How was I going to stand up from this table without pitching a tent to half the cafe? The whole night started its turn for the worse when I saw those gorgeous, smoking eyes go from flirty to afraid. I heard the door open and felt ice in my veins, the gaze of my back. I turned my head to look. Oh, feck. Yeah, it was the husband. Then he had a gun. The look on his face was not what I would describe as uh, charitable. Someone in the cafe screamed, maybe it was my date. Maybe some other patron who had just seen a ruddy-faced millionaire stride into the place with a raised clock and thunder in his eyes. I raised my hands to placate, the usual life-saving bullcrapper ready on my tongue. But my murderer only saw red. God, the sound of that thing firing was loud. A hard piece of wire dug into my chest, making me clutch my shirt. My hand came away, wet. The next screamer was definitely my date. Then I was on my way to the cafe floor. My last thoughts were, oh Jesus, everyone's gonna know I died with a fecking stuffy. The next sensation that hit me can't really be described. I didn't really see it. Because I didn't have eyes anymore. Couldn't touch it without hands. All I knew was that it sucked. I suppose the closest analogy I could find was that it burned. It seared with a fire that reached deep into the core of what I was. Finding the most delicate, most sensitive parts of my soul and putting it in a blender. Ah, crap, I tried to say, with a mouth I no longer had. This is hell, isn't it? That was ten years ago. Oh, maybe it was ten seconds. Ten centuries? All I know is that every brutal horror I suffered seemed to have happened seconds ago. There were other souls like mine. Jerks, every one of them. If you thought it was a terribly unfair that hell is real and people go there, don't. Trust me, all these guys belonged right here. 
until I met that one guy. One dude I wasn't so sure of. You see, there was no up or down in hell, but there was a kind of depth to it. You felt like you could sink into like a burning tar, and eventually I tried just to escape what came before. The further down I went, the colder it became. The scorching feeling died down and was replaced with something less violent, but more horrifying. It was a kind of blackness, a darkness, a nothingness that came packaged with a horrible promise. You're here. Horrible. That was when I tried to scream, not for the first time, but, oh yeah, I screamed. And that was how he found me, sitting in the void, no lungs, no mouth, but screaming at the blackness. Her presence surrounded me, powerful, vast. It was a soul, but as different from mine as a great white shark was from a sprat. The mere fact that it was enough to stop me screaming just because it was something. It reached out, and for the first time since falling into this literally godforsaken pent, I heard his voice. First time, buddy. There weren't many at this level, just me and this dude. I think he was glad for someone to talk to. I know I sure as shit was. He asked me how I died and why I was in hell, and I told him what I could no point in hiding anything. No innocent souls down here. I ranted about all the married women humped and dumped, the drugs bought and sold, the hedge fund dads taught me to manage, the medical scam me and my brother were so fecking proud of that the time. Dude nodded along like a sage, either because he was Buddha levels of Zen, or because he had been here so long he barely had any idea of what I was talking about. Only then did I finally think to ask him who he actually was. Me, uh, I'm Lucifer. I've been here for um, uh, a while. Uh, you're, you're shitting. I beg your pardon. You're the devil, Old Scratch, El Diablo, Satan. You're Lucifer, Morningstar. Even as I questioned it, I questioned my questioning. The dude's soul was massive. His calm was unreal considering where he was, and I just spilled my guts and confessed a lifetime of sin to fucking Satan. Old scratch, <laughs> haven't heard that one, actually. So hard to keep up with all these names they keep giving me. Does that mean that you're a fallen angel? No such thing as angels, my dude. Huh. I had to ponder that one. I was in hell talking to Lucifer. Surely angels had to be real. But, um, if there are no angels or God- Whoa, whoa, whoa there, slow down, bucko. Angels are just a crock of horseshit. But God is very much real. Nothing else, just the fat man upstairs and us humans. You're human? The devil is a human. Oh, yes, uh, I get painful reminder of that every second I spend out here. Every moment I refuse to go back up. But, but then what? I really didn't know what to ask first here. Lucifer was a human. Angels weren't real. What else did I have wrong? I can see you're confused, buddy. Let me try and straighten a few things out. The Bible, all bullshit. The commandments were made up by men 
Jesus was some dude who rolled a nat 20 for charisma, and God doesn't give a crap about whether you get a tattoo, wear mixed fabrics, eat shrimp, or feck other men. He judges every soul individually, and he decides if they will make his condo upstairs prettier, or should spend all of eternity roasting in eternal damnation. And, uh, me. I could feel the passion rolling off his soul now, emotions so hard-baked into his being that they were a fundamental part of who he was. What was that? Then red streak running through his eternal soul. Well, newbie, shake my hand and call me senpai, because I am the OG down here. Yes, sir. First soul in hell. First of God's creations he decided wasn't fit for the cool kids club. Ten thousand years in hell. That's me. That's my life. An eternity of punishment because I didn't scrape and bow with gratitude for the honor of being allowed to exist. Oh... That red streak, it was hatred. It was a burning anger so intense that I felt my soul wither under its purity. Lucifer's soul was so vast, so powerful, I wondered if it was all just so he could hold more of that fury, more of that hate, all of it focused in one direction. God sent you down here. Why? For a time out, kiddo, I wasn't conforming enough to his standards of grateful little slaves. So he put me down here in hell until I came begging to be let back into his club. I said no. Then I kept on saying no. Must be tearing the arrogant bastard apart. Knowing the worst he could come up with isn't enough to overcome good old-fashioned human stubbornness. He chuckled, the most sardonic thing I had ever not heard. Fuck him! I'll spend all of existence down here. He wants his first son back. He's gonna have to come down here and apologize to me. And it had better be one hell of an apology. We drifted in silence for a bit. Had a lot to think. This place was awful. Literal hell. I could feel madness creeping in at the edges of my mind, and I had seen some of the souls that had been here a while. It was like looking at the bombed-out wreck of a once-beautiful car. They were just rusted, hollow creatures that couldn't even summon the coherence to wish that they didn't exist. This guy had been here longer than all of them. He was truly, genuinely ancient. But his soul was stronger than ever. Stronger than any, in fact. The anger hadn't corroded his soul. It had grown it. I decided then and there that I was going to stick with this guy, because if God ever did decide to come down for a chat, he was going to have a fight of his hats. And I didn't think that God would win. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1482 Story number one Order of Parting Written by Zelkos Barrow felt water on his skin, lying on his back with the lake slowly pushing past him. He was content to just let go. The ground against his spines was hard, but the wet, cool waves drowned it out. The aches and the strains in his call seemed to get further and further away with each passing moment. 
He heard someone coming toward him along the shore. But who would be here? It was Alice, gliding towards him. But the golden sunlight streaming past her hair, she was as beautiful as the day she bonded with him. Her bracelets and brooches jangling as she ran, glinting dimly in the afternoon sun off of her green sundress. He wasn't worth her loving smile and gentle patience. Marrow would have to make it up to her somehow. Maybe a vacation to the islands. She came to him then, getting down on her knees as she approached. She leaned over Marrow with that mischievous glint in her eyes, smiling just a little bit as she laid her hands on his chest. As she slid slower and she looked up at him, eyes piercing his. She leaned back, smiled, and opened her lips to say in a lovely voice, Clear! Pain! It rippled across his chest and down his side, a torrent of fervent and angry pain tearing down through his sternum towards his core. Alice seemed to waver in his eyes. As the pain started to focus and grow, his shoulder was aflame, his nerves each trying to demand his focus and attention, each one turning black and made of voices calling out for the release and clear... The torrent ripped and screamed as it made its way through Barrow's body. His legs convulsed as his spines retracted into their paws. Barrow's arms were an inferno feeding off its own shoulder. The world flashed and Alice turned a sickly pink color. Her hair started to condense into a hard sheen, her sundress growing coarse and with odd shapes throughout along the front. The waves turned ugly, less of an ocean, more of an off-blood color. And Barrow began to suspect that they had never been waves at all. Clear! Alice was banished, reality came into focus, and standing over him was a strange human. It had olive green dermal coverings, dispersing with pockets every nature of any kind. Barrow had never seen so many pockets, in contrast to that, the large red cross on the human's shoulder commanded his attention. Barrow distorted mind, desperately tried to recall human battle companies. He failed. Human! Barrow coughed on blood, trying to clear his throat repeatedly while slowly starting to stand. Ah, the human answered. Guess they were right. You silker bastards just needed an attunement and you get right back up, don't you? Barrow lurched under his weight, the shift allowing him to come to his feet properly. Human, Barrow finally growled out. What battle company are you? Hmm, the human said. Oh, uh, none, sir. I'm from the monastery about three miles back. Uh, order of the parting, sir. Uh, trying to educate your people on mortality. Then why are you on the battle lines? Barrow answered slowly recovering his memory. Well, uh, quite frankly, I, I wanted to see if it would work, the human answered quickly. If, um, what would work, Barrow said. This, the human said, holding up a strange square object with wires running along it. Barrow noticed some of the connections had fused to the strange device. The human noticed his confusion. 
This is an AED. It's an automated external defibrillator. Well, uh, not really. This one has been jury-rigged to give higher electrical shocks. Not safe for me, but it seemed to work just fine for you. The human exclaimed, smiling. Barrow stared at the strange pink thing four feet beneath him. His scales had responded to an electrical pulse, reformed over the large wound on his side and arm, and started mutations to heal immediately. Such a thing was previously known only to happen when the gods graced the planet with thunderstorms. This human had forced it to happen. Well, um, I'll get out of your scales, please, uh, Take it easy. I'd hate to have to meet you again. Good luck, the human said, bounding away towards the hills. Barrow watched the human until the crest of the hill and disappeared. Order of parting. Barrow remembered the rumors about that. A human embassy turned enclave up near the hills. The nickname that he'd heard given was the Order of Death. He had heard very different rumors from the truth, it seemed. Barrow checked himself over finding all his scales well-positioned and in place. A remarkable wonder. He found his rifle laying nearby and started rolling back towards the battle lines proper. The order of parting. Well, he'd have to bring them a gift. When the Civil War ended, he thought Alice would like that. End of story. Story number two. Killer Moose, written by Joe2 underscore zero. Terrans are very interesting as a species, where any species seek out the safest possible way to do something. Terrans seem to do it in the most dangerous way possible, even when safer options may be available. Helicopters, which they still use 500 years after the advent of cheap civilian VTOL, Chemical rockets, manned fighters, and user-driven automobiles. But it is in the combat arena that they seem to excel at this. Enter the paratroopers. These units were founded before even the helicopter was invented, and the exact reason eludes me. A paratrooper unit is at its core an all-volunteer force, even during times of conscription which gives some level of indication to its danger. Their sole purpose was, believe it or not, is to be flown over or behind enemy and then jump out of planes. The only thing preventing them from splattering against the ground is an inverted bowl-shaped piece of fabric that they are suspended from, which was prepared by an entirely different Terran. And if it fails, which they sometimes do, they have a second which also sometimes fails. And even if neither parachute fails, they can time the opening wrong, land the wrong way, get caught on the mothercraft, or suffer any other number of potential fatal mishaps. If you don't catch any of that, it is utter insanity. In modern times, the Terrans have upped the ante on the danger and doubled down. They deploy exclusively from space now, and are a distinct entity from orbital drop troopers, though both call themselves paratroopers, which caused much confusion when writing this report. The real paratroopers use devices called, rather innocuously, Manual Orbital Operation Security Equipment, or uh, Moose. 
What this is, is a single-use one-person heat shield in which the user lies on their back, holding an attitude thruster on a mount much like a machine gun, complete with Terran standard spade grips, facing directly towards the back of the shield. A set of airbags deploy around the user upon launch from the mothercraft, and all the information is displayed upon the visor of the paratrooper's pressure suit. Oh yes, the entire contraption is unpressurized, and so the operator is in a hard vacuum the entire time. Forgot to mention that. The attitude gun is then used to maintain the facing and correct trajectory of the moose, in order to ensure that he or she does not burn up alongside the ablative coating of the moose. As the back of the moose is unprotected from heat or aerodynamic forces. Yes, you did read that correctly. The back is covered with a shallow conical sheet of canvas in TAN 499. Once both speed and heat have dropped to an acceptable levels, a drogue parachute deploys from the back of the moose, and the airbags are deflated with the entire attitude gun and canvas sheet being ejected. At this point, the paratrooper bails out, leaving the attitude gun, canvas, airbag assembly, and heat shield to crash into the ground. At this point, the paratrooper is falling at terminal velocity, delaying the opening of his or her own parachute, a specialized type called a parafoil, capable of significant yaw acceleration, deacceleration, and limited pitch control, until less than one kilometer from the ground. During this period, the paratrooper is significantly less visible on radar and visual scanners than a drop pod. This is the primary advantage of a parachute insertion over an orbital drop pod insertion, and it is absolutely, completely unknown, approximated as fuck as pants on head, grade A insanity. At this time, despite the offers from Terran Ordnance Bureau, I cannot recommend in good conscience this system to be adopted by the Volker's orbital core. The marginally increased safety from enemy action does not, in the, my mind, make up for the significantly increased risk of insertion system itself. And I do not care how badass it sounds. That said, please contact our Terran liaison and see how much groveling it would take to get a few Terran parachute regiments attached to us. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1483 Story number one, Derelict, written by Rhino Bird. Would you look at that, said Captain Tukluk, who sesh eyed the instrument panel. It is some kind of derelict. Uh, I can't place the class of ship, though. Uh, it is um, ancient, whatever it is. I don't see anything that looks like a light pod. I recommend parking off the center mass here. And we can repel to the engineering module and try to energize the systems said Arsenbot. I like where your brain is boxes at. Let's see if we can haul the whole thing back to civilization, said the captain. Let's grab our gear and take a look. Suited up, they made their way to the drifting ship and found a hatch. The interior seemed to drink the light from the lamps. Unknown ruins lined the walls. Pipes and dark work flowed along the ceiling. A slight groan of ancient metal and distant knocks echoed to the ship. Arsenbot waved his lights as he scanned the walls. 
This cell looks very familiar. I can't place my finger on it. Hussash nodded. I hear you. He pulled up his display. Looks like an engineering station is in that direction. After you. The captain waved a tentacle as he eyed the hallway suspiciously. The engineering section was spotless, as if it had been a scrubbed. It gave the impression that the owners had simply turned out the lights and stepped out. I could swear that could be a standard fusion engine, cooked Hussesh. I concur. It is very similar to the Imperial System PBAN reactor, observed Arsonbot. We might just be able to get this fully powered. I bet all the H2 is leaked out by now, Hussesh said. But, as the ancients say, be prepared. He waved a small cylinder of fuel. Hussesh and Arsonbot set to work. The captain saw that he was not immediately needed. I'm going to explore the rest of the ship, said the captain to click. Presently, the captain's voice was heard over the radio. Mr. Arsenbot, I here need ya. Arsenbot looked at Hussesh, who gave a knowing look. Keep working. I'll go see you, the captain clots. Arsenbot rounded the corner. Captain, what have you gotten yourself stuck? Oh! Arsenbot found himself on the bridge, or what was left of the bridge. A wall was missing along one side. The jagged remains of a console blotted out the star's bleeding light into the room. The scar seemed to rip into the next deck. The captain had spread himself flat along the opposite wall. You've seen space before. Why did you call me? The captain pointed to the central chair, where a body was somehow still slumped over the console. I see. What is it? Squeaked to click. Arsenbot approached the corpse. Captain, uh, this is a human. A uh, human? This is an ancient vessel. The captain's fear vanished, replaced with avarice. This vessel is worth the whole star system. The ancients have truly smiled on us, boys. The lights flickered on briefly and went out. There was another ancient metallic groan, followed by a knocking. Hussesh cracked in over the radio. Guys, yeah, um, I can't figure it out. Everything has power, but it won't turn on. Arsenbot stood up and walked to the console. From his belly locker, he pulled the cable and plugged it into the console. It lit up. I'm pulling the ship's logs. Um, done. Uh, processing. This is the captain. Arsenbot gestured to the mummy. He was on the bridge when the meteor struck and ripped a hole in the ship. In his final seconds... He managed to alert the crew and most were able to evacuate before he died. Arsenbot! The captain was cut off as Hussesh walked through the door. Hey, uh, to click. I was tracing the power cables and there's some more corpses right below here. Captain, please. We must be quiet and pay our respects. Mr. Arsenbot, I never known you to be so sentimental. Arsenbot knelt before the desiccated husk and reached a manipulator to its cheek. He stared into the eye sockets of the human skull. Can you feel it, Captain? Feel what? He's still here. What are you talking about, Arsenbot? Are you destabilizing? Right now of all times. Captain, please. We must be quiet and pay our respects. The ancients believed that there was more to everything than what could be seen or measured. That everything had a soul or a key. An ineffable something. Somehow they managed to imbue a little of their own soul into whatever they made. Sometimes more than just a little. 
It's one reason why ancient artifacts are so valuable. When they shouldn't work, they do. Through sheer will, somehow. When they should, they don't. Out of spite. You have to respect the ancient tools, or they'll burn you. I'm not buying it. That isn't talk of a sane mind, the captain said. You're getting a full diagnostic when we collect on this prize. The ship shook. Ancient girders moaned and pings echoed down the hall. The husk's skull turned and stared at it with an angry grin. No, I'm as stable as ever, Arsenbot whispered. I was made by humans, you know. Arsenbot glanced over to the captain. Somehow his metal sensor blade looked wistful. Not me personally, but my kind. I haven't seen a human in uh, a thousand years, Arsenbot continued. And this place is, um, hallowed, and won't be disturbed. Tick-click grew a concerned look in his face, whose sesh looked around nervously. Gentlemen, stand here with me, and bow your heads. They did so. Arson Bot spoke. Ensure and certain hope of the resurrection, or to the eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. We command the Almighty God, our brethren, and we commit their bodies to space. Earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. The Lord bless them and keep them. The Lord make their face to shine upon them and be gracious unto them and give them peace. Amen. The mummy collapsed to the floor, now mere bones and dust. This girl appeared to sleep. Godspeed, gentlemen, whispered Arsenbot. The cook wore a very sick expression, whose sesh whispered a prayer to his people's old gods. They both left the ship in a rather busy haste. Arsenbot entered the airlock, turned, bowed, and followed. End of story. Story number two. The Guardian's Vigil, written by Hypothetical Shagoth. Sooner or later, all of the greatest minds, warriors, and your old wranglers of note, face it. They must, once they reach the peak of their profession, to see if they shall be the one who reaches the peak. It sits in the middle of a barren plain, on an otherwise comfortable planet. The winds should be howling, bitter cold or scalding hot. But they're poor sports and are instead comfortable and friendly. The light of the twin stars should threaten and burn one's shadow away, right through them. But instead, they're the optimal intensity and color for comfortable naps for most species capable of such. The only soul-searing, maddening details on the otherwise endearing world is the Guardian. None know what it does within its abode, for the structure defies all scanning technologies, shedding even neutrino streams. The metal of the structure is such a plainly, purely metal door that material scientists are driven mad taking up careers in gladiatorial parkour or flash mob particle physics. Its only features are the switch at the seam. Sometimes the Guardian will watch as challenges approach, its cheerful, mocking visage peeking out at them or leaning on the lip of its portal. Other times, the Challenger never sees the Guardian, either due to its speed or due to the Guardian waiting until the Challenger 
was nearly out of sensory range before throwing the switch. Once, it waited until the Challenger ship was about to hit FTL, sensors still trained on the box, before it emerged, mockingly throwing the switch once more. Sometimes, in especially heated battles, the Guardian will throw the switch itself, allowing the Challenger the illusion of victory before toggling it back. Always, it smiles. That terrible, friendly, mocking smile. It's bombarded from orbit at least once a year. Precision strikes on the switch are shrugged off as easily as tiny, quarter-unit low-grav challenges throwing the switch. For all the switch is equally as easily thrown, and just as easily reset. Attempts to toggle the switch in order to lure the Guardian out to be ambushed are always met with the same result. At the first instant, the ambushers all blink or look away, or whatever their physiology would do. The Guardian resets it. Rumors abound about it, that it guards unknowable treasures, that it holds keys to science's greatest questions, that it is a tomb of a great ruler or a god, that it houses a secret of the perfect pie. Most accepted for what it most likely is, another ineffable bits of human nonsense that they're prone to littering the spaceway with. They certainly seem prone to it, though they also challenge the Guardian as much as all the other races combined. They swear up and down that it's just an old toy of theirs, the do-nothing machine. All I know is, nobody is going to beat my record for keeping that switch toggled. Excerpt from the travel journals of Green Scales, the probably insane. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1484 Berserker, written by Ordinant A term not many species in the galaxy have, so when it is mentioned by the few that do, translators get screwy. That's why, when I heard the word come from an older-looking Zwan during one of their stories, I was confused, mainly due to the fact that I didn't know the meaning of the word or how the Zwan would have even known it. So I approached him, to ask him if it's meaning and listening to the story. I found a seat opposite the Zwan at his table, the sound of the bar seeming to grow hushed. Not many, wanting to interrupt the story of an elder, even if this was a public place. I cleared my throat to speak, managing to find my voice in the deafening silence. Uh, um, Berserker? What does the word mean, Elder? The oldest one took a moment, their four eyes blinking at different intervals as they focused onto me. The sight was a natural one that Elders displayed when deep in thought, so I was fairly certain my answer was coming. What is the word, you ask? The Elder spoke once again, his mandibles clacking together with each word. It could be considered similar to the word for warrior, fighter, or even indomitable. Perhaps it is best explained with a story. The older lifted up a slim pipe and placed it between their mandibles, taking a deep breath before blowing out the purple haze. It was quite a while ago, so many cycles ago that you may not have even hatched. 
the eldest boy spoke, and it felt as if the story was playing through my mind. Human, you must escape. It is me thereafter. The elder, who was far younger in this tale, was clutching a wound that bore deep into his lower torso, an exoskeleton fracture, and burned. The human wasn't much better off, burn marks covering his upper torso and legs, his clothes in tatters from the run so far. They were both in an abandoned building, a bunker of salts. The ground around them shaking from the explosions of the Itho blasted their way deeper. What a load of crap, Mirk! Leave you! The human wiped some blood from his chin, the sight causing Mirk great pain. He hated to see his friend in such a state, especially due to his own personal blood feud. Listen, Mirk, there's a ship nearby. We just need to make it there and get off the planet. The Aether won't have enough time to get back to their own ship before we've jumped halfway to the next system. The human, as damaged as he was, still had eyes that shone with vigor and determination. It was a rare sight, seeing so clearly the emotions of a human. Yet Mirk had spent years with this human and had come to learn how to spot such emotions. Fine, let us go, my friend. One last wild run. Mirk rose to his feet, his damaged exoskeleton cracking further, causing him to wince. Walking would be nearly impossible, but he could manage. The human seemed to have a different idea. He easily lifted Mirk, grunting from it as he carried Mirk in what the humans would have considered a bridal carry. Though to Mirk, it was just being carried. You, do you plan on carrying me the whole way? You won't make it. Shadot, we both know your body wouldn't last even halfway, so just hold on. The human bent down, his muscles visibly contracting. The body of the Death Wilder was still amazing to Mirk at times like this, even after so many years of knowing him. It was even more exhilarating once the human began running. It felt like they were flying by. It was amazing, otherworldly. But the fascination did not last long. A hail of plasma bolts came flying around them the moment that they exited the building, and the human pressed Mirk tight against his chest, bounding up the somewhat similar Indian. The human gritted his teeth as time and time again plasma bolts slammed into his back, his thighs, his calves. Normally, plasma bolts felt like a summer day, but these newer tips burned with each hit and he could feel his legs wanting to give out. Just as thoughts entered his mind, the ship came into view. Right there. It was right there. Even so, the human, the mighty human who had shielded Mirk throughout the entirety of the rum before this, began to stumble. He caught himself just barely as he fell to a knee. The ship was before them, and even closer was a growing number of Aitho mercenaries blocking the path. Mirk, make it to the ship. There is an onboard medical assistant robot meant exactly for these types of getaways. The human's voice was unwavering, and he slowly lowered Mirk to his feet. Mirk, however, couldn't believe his ears. This sounded as if the human didn't believe that he could make it. Mirk began to raise his voice in protest, but the human shot him a single cold glare for the moment his mandibles clicked together. Go! I'll clear the way. You just have to make it into the ship. Ready? 
The last word was what contained any other emotion besides determination. And that single word remained the human Myrk had known for so long. Myrk couldn't say anything in protest. Even now, the mercenaries were still firing, each shot bringing the human closer and closer to death. He had to act. He had to act now. I'm ready. Let's do this. Now I'll see you on the ship, Myrk said, even now still hopeful. His mind so far off from the wound still burning against his chest. The human took a deep breath, rose to his fullest. Both the human and Myrk broke into dead sprints forwards. However, it wasn't even a contest. It looked like the human was a blur, and as he crashed into the mercenaries blocking the path, he unleashed a battle cry. It rocked the surroundings as if a great explosion had gone off. Myrk and the mercenaries were all stunned by it. But Mirk gathered himself faster. He ran as fast as his wounded legs could carry him, ignoring the pain. He ran and ran, all while the sounds of plasma bolts hitting flesh began again. The sound was accompanied by that screams of the limbs being torn off as Mirk reached the ship, lowered the staircase to enter the bridge. He turned back, and his hearts sank. He saw the human. His friend, for so long, surrounded on all sides by one of the Aitho mercenaries. The human's body was covered in blood, both his own and the Aitho's, and yet he continued to fight, not once looking back. Mirk heard the human's voice echo in his mind, and yet he couldn't just leave, not as he recalled everything the human had done. His friend was buying time for his escape, but Mirk had other plans. But they were crazy. The type of crazy that came from being with friends with the Death Walter. He ran into the ship and powered it up. However, he bypassed the engines powering up and went for the weapons. These were meant for ship-to-ship combat, and firing them into a crowd would vaporize the Aitho mercenaries. He swiveled the turret, aiming it down at the brawl that was steadily turning in favor of the mercenaries even though the human still crushed the ribcage of one and destroyed the skull of another. Mirk grabbed the comms device and turned the outside speakers on. My friend, you, uh, you better survive this. Mirk's voice was hoarse as he yelled. The human turned for a moment, gazing at the ship and then the turrets that loomed above him. Then the human smiled, smiled. Even while the Aitho mercenaries were stunned in fear, the human seemed pleased. Mirk was afraid. He didn't know if this would kill his friend. He had no real experience with ship weapons. He steeled himself and hit the trigger. And in the same moment, the human willed every fiber of his being to move, even as his legs were charred, stabbed, and slashed. He took one step and then managed to throw himself forwards, as the massive ball of plasma collided with the ground, obliterating a part of the docking bay alongside the mercenaries. Smoke bellowed up from the destruction, and Miak looked around the area, looking everywhere he could through the cameras the ship had for any view of his friend. Nothing. Nothing. Where is he? Miak could feel his chest tightened, his wound beginning to grow worse and worse, as his mental state slipped. It was then 
that a bloody hand was placed on Mirk's shoulder. Mirk swiveled around in his chair and saw a battered and bruised human standing above him, that same crazy smile playing across his lips. Out of a shot, Mirk. The elder took another blow off of his pipe, his mandibles clicking together as he finished speaking. The bar was silent, as was I. We were stunned. Humans were known to be durable. But to survive all of that, it was uh, otherworldly. Impossible. The elder let out a smoke once again and met my stunned gaze. Berserker, in its most raw description of my people, is another word for human. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1485 My Dreamy Alien Boyfriend Written by Leather and Chintz I took refuge in the bathroom to eat my lunch. Ugh. If Kara would have just left me alone, life would be so much easier. I hate final year. As I ate, someone walked in and tapped on the stall door. Something peeked under the door. A phone. It's her. What a freak. But Janitor Bucker was rolled under the door. I barely had time to try and figure out what was going on before a loud noise sounded, and the terrible muck inside exploded all over me. I heard laughing as the footsteps retreated. My rage and frustration built up as I sat there in silence, until I finally screamed and kicked the bucket out of the store. I dumped my tray of food to the side. I didn't care. The awful stink of that muck filled my senses. He was in my mouth. I stepped out of the store, and the sudden movement broke the dam I had been struggling to hold back. Half-digested food and bowels spewed everywhere as I doubled over. I tried to move back to throw up in the toilet, but turning caused another wave of spray everywhere. I couldn't stay on my feet. I dropped to my hands and my knees as my stomach cramped hard. I took nearly ten minutes, but eventually I recovered. I looked at all of the mess. It had been violent, and splatter had gotten it everywhere as I swayed, making my way to the least tainted sink. I washed my mouth out and cleaned my face and my hands, but otherwise didn't bother. I left everything behind and left the school. At home, in the rear yard, I stripped down, hosed everything off. I put my clothes in the laundry. I went for a shower. Thank goodness my parents went home. After brushing that awful muck out of my hair, I took my time getting dry. I always did like the heady floral scent of this hair scent. I rubbed it in and carefully dried myself off all over. Finally done. I considered staying home, but shook my head. I wanted to be alone, and my father would return home soon. I grabbed my crushed shoulder pack and tossed it hastily, made lunch into it, along with my phone and a backup battery. I put on some more comfortable clothes and my school uniform, as well as my mucking boots, and left the house. Living on the edge of town was a major advantage for me, since a friend of the family had some land they gifted me out in the swamp. It was only a four-kilometer walk to the small shelter I had built, but it always was a difficult trip through the swamp. The ground was uneven, roops were tripping a hazard, and there were sucking pools that you could be pulled down to your death if you weren't careful. Still, I loved the safety and the solitude. The only person who'd come out here willingly was me. 
It was a bad land, but it wasn't as dangerous as everyone seemed to think. I hadn't ever seen any of the supposed large predators that were said to dwell out there, and I didn't have to worry about anyone finding me and bothering me. I glanced around, more out of habit than actual concern, and disappeared around the corner into a hidden hut that I'd built. I was happy here. The sod roof and moss growing around it disguised the small home away from home, and even the door was hidden, cleverly hidden behind the bark of a fallen log. I had taken great pains to make sure that I could rest here comfortably. I glanced around and took stock. A small table, a chair, my hammock, a simple bug ward, a crate with my stuff, and the three small animals I had caught. They waited in their cages. I gave them their food and turned to the crate. I didn't want to rest today. I looked through my things, an old book about magic rituals, candles, crystals, and life, chalk, salt, and a needle and a vial. The old book I'd purchased from the used bookstall sat on the floor of the small hut. I carefully drew a circle and the symbols from the book. I tied a cord around my arm and stuck the needle in my vein to pull the vial with blood. We might be weak in magic, but it was known that there were other beings with lots of power. I could make a deal for protection, or money, or something to make life better. I looked at the few meager offerings I had managed to collect. A few live animals, some small gold coins, and even a small vial of fresh blood. If that's what it took, it was even virgin blood and most of the sources online said that I was the strongest blood. I poured a thin line of salt, totally unbroken, around the circle. The book said that demons can't cross salt, so it seemed like a reasonable precaution. I also had crystals and black candles that I had bought. I arranged them around the circle. The book didn't say anything about crystals or candles, but it didn't feel mystical enough without them. I looked at the book. Hmm. The book said I needed a demon's name to summon them, but I couldn't find any demon's names. I guess if I don't speak a name, I'll get a random demon. Oh well. One demon's probably the same as another. After lighting the candles, I winced as I pricked my finger with the knife and let the blood drip into the circle. It changed from a white to black, and I recited the dark and terrible words from the forbidden tongue written in the book. I repeated the words over and over as the circle began to glow. A shadowy form began to appear. There was a bright blue flash, and when I looked again, there he was. The strange creature looked frail, but I knew I had to be careful. It looked at me with eyes like a hungry predator. I could feel its gaze looking up and down my body. It looked down at the summoning circle, then at the animals, then at the coins and the vial of blood. Its teeth flash, and it spoke. What? Who are you? And why am I here? Oh, God! I'd forgotten I needed to talk to him. I, uh, uh, I want to, um, uh, I want to make a deal. Oh, I'm listening. My heart pounded in my chest. Could this creature know how scared I was? Its gaze occasionally glanced through my chest so it must be able to hear my heartbeat. I brought all these offerings in exchange for your help. 
I gestured to the animals and the items on the table, and uh, I want your protection. I've been tormented at school non-stop for, for two years now. I don't get any peace or privacy at home. I just want to be safe. Is that all? Speak your deepest desires. I, I want someone to care about me. I want someone I can talk to. And who won't abandon me over the stupid rumors because of threats. The being's teeth flashed again as its lips pulled back into a mockery of a smile. I can offer you that. I don't know what I'm expected to protect you from, but I'll see what I can do. Relief washed over me as I felt the knot of my stomach lessen somewhat. And uh, you... you like my offerings? Mmm. I'm not really interested in the animals or the gold. And uh, I'm not sure what you expect me to do with the... Uh, is that blood? My voice quieted down as the knot came back. Harder than ever, I could feel its piercing gaze, like a hunter staring down its prey. It's my blood. It's virgin blood. If, if, if that makes it more valuable, hmm. Your blood doesn't interest me, but uh, I think I'll stay. You are an adult, aren't you? Capable of making deals of this nature? I shivered as a sudden chill hit me. He doesn't want my offering. I tried my best to not think about the terrible things that he might demand. I'm still in school, but I became an adult two months ago. It stepped out of the circle, as if the salt wasn't even there. My blood ran cold as I backed away to the wall. Closer and closer it came. I tried to speak, but only a few words escaped my lips. How? How did the salt not stop you? He stopped and looked at me curiously. Salt! What are you talking about? Demons can't cross salt. How can you leave the circle? The creature paused a moment and looked down at his hands. It looked itself over, then ran its hands over its short hair. Hmm. No, I'm not a demon. Pretty sure I'm still human. Uh, what's a human? It gave that toothy smile again. We're ape people. Just like you appear to be a big tape person. Uh, what? I'm Irak. With the flourish of his right hand, it bent the arm in front of its waist and gave an elaborate bow. It is an honor to meet you, Hyrek. I am Callum Brewer. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1486 Don't Touch Anything, written by H. DeFort The human engineer had been standing for five hours in the airlock, and he was getting restless. Do we really have to go through the old test again? He whined, kicking the metal floor with his boot. Yes, Dan, we have to perform another EVA suit pressure test. The last few tests showed that the suit pressure and temperature control sensors are not yet calibrated properly for the human body. You wouldn't want to overheat while working on a solar panel outside a space station, for instance. I, uh, think I need to pee. Said Stan, still whining like a puppy and rolling his eyes behind his helmet. Glass pain. Stan, you have taken a bathroom break less than an hour ago. According to human body function data, it is unlikely that you need to pee again after such a short delay. You haven't drunk anything, and your EVA suit sensors show an empty bladder anyway. I'm so bored, I'm sweaty, and my legs are numb. Murtuk didn't like working with humans. 
he found them to be impatient, whiny, and excessively curious. They lacked discipline and kept trying to optimize everything by bypassing the most basic safety measures or by disregarding the chain of command. He patted the human's shoulder in a rather slow show of empathy, thinking that this gesture might help the human relax a bit. He'd memorized dozens of non-verbal communication signs in three different human cultures. Still, he struggled to understand what humans meant when they said something like, Yeah, sure, I'll do that, whatever, but had no intention of actually performing the duty. These human-grade EBA suits had proven to be a logistical nightmare. Humans generate way more heat than any other species on board the ship, so additional heat dissipation had to be added. With the additional panels on their backs, humans looked like the mythical creatures from their world, a cherub. At least, these so-called cherub suits would provide much-needed radiation shielding to humans when they stepped outside of the ship. The EVA suits brought on board by humans were very primitive and fragile. We will now close the door and perform another partial decompression test to see how the heat dissipation unit performs. Please stand still, Stan, and we'll get a good reading. Murtuk and the other technicians walked out into the airlock and closed the heavy metal door behind them. Stan sighed and straightened his body, taking a pose of a statue. He then jokingly moved his legs back and forth, pretending to throw arrows from his arms. We get it, Stan. You're a cherub. Now, uh, please stand still. We don't want your increased energy production to mess up the baseline. Stan sighed and went back to his standing position. The Kastari have literally no sense of humor. Outside the airlock, Burtick pressed his series of purple buttons and his assistant tapped a few commands on a tablet with the paw. The air started being sucked out of the airlock with a loud hissing sound and a long bell ringing every few seconds. The test was going fine, and Stan's EBA suit was reporting excellent life support parameters. However, the temperatures started rising inside the suit again after a few moments, and Murtuk had to abort the test again. The suit's monitor was showing yellow warning lights as well, as a message in the blocky Terran characters. Decompression test unsuccessful. EBA suit overheating. I think we need a larger pump for the heat dissipation unit, said the Kashtari assistant. Murtek moved his whiskers up and down in agreement. Hey, uh, I'm getting all sweaty in here, whined Stan over the intercom. He was starting to feel like a clam in a clam bake. You can take off your helmet now. We will be back in a few standard time units. Murtek looked through the door and saw Stan pulling one of the numerous cables holding sensors and measurement devices around him. He was trying to untangle two of the cables, even though this wouldn't have any impact on the test results. Unbelievable. Don't uh, touch anything, okay? All right, answered Stan, pouting. Stan tried to scratch the back of his head with his right hand, and his glove bumped his helmet. He sighed, and he felt a drop of sweat rolling on his neck. Murtuk and his assistant walked away, and Stan was left to himself, all alone in a closed airlock. He promptly took off his helmet, pulling the four safety brackets and dropping it to the floor. The helmet wobbled a few feet away and stopped. He then pulled the safety brackets on his wrist, using his teeth to unlock his right glove. 
using teeth to perform tasks was of course not part of standard procedure. He sighed in relief as the heat was dissipated into the airlock through the suit's neck and wrist openings. Stan started playing with the suit's parameters, increasing air circulation, adjusting the internal fabric's pressure on his ankles, calibrating the temperature control around his torso. He was much more comfortable now, and the suit's monitor was showing only green lights. Then, he got really bored. He sat on his helmet and picked his tablet up to browse and find a casual video game to kill time. However, this was a Kishtari tablet, and there were no games on it. Just boring work contents. Stan browsed through the on-screen menus, using his rudimentary knowledge in Kastari language to try and find anything of interest. He was about to give up when he spotted an interesting entry. The entry roughly translated to ambient sounds that use harmonics to soothe, which was, of course, the overly complicated expression Kastari used to refer to instrumental music. Stan watched a three-minute instructional video a few times, memorizing the command sequence. He then walked up to the wall console, tripping over sensor wires a few times and unplugged a cable in the process. On the airlock wall console, a warning message in Kastari politely informed him that the suit's monitoring and recording was disengaged. Oh well, more work for Murtex's assistant when he comes back, and more delays. Stan looked at the wall console. It was overly complicated, with over 30 buttons of various colors and a single blue terminal screen with a cursor. Despite their advanced technology, the Gastari were very conservative when it comes to interfaces. Where other spacefaring species relied on vocal commands, gestures, or cybernetic mind interfaces, the Gastari wanted to feel the presence of physical push buttons under their paws. Even the highly optimized touchscreen interfaces that humans used in their vehicles were frowned upon by Kishtari pilots. Muttering to himself, Stan started punching in the sequence. Push the round red button, pull the yellow switch down, wait for the confirmation screen, push the square purple button. The screen displayed a cryptic message in Kishtari indicating that system awaiting special command for airlock internal environmental action. That's the best translation Stan could come up with. Three square purple buttons started blinking on the console. Stan tried real hard to remember which one he had to push to set the ambient music. The instructional video was showing only one blinking light. Oh well, uh, what's the worst that can happen? Elevator music! Kishnari acid jazz! Stan was giggling at the thought. He then pressed the first purple button, which was very unfortunate. Stan was not aware that due to the Kishtari's eyes wider light spectrum, these four purple buttons were actually four completely different colors. An emergency siren started blaring, which threw Stan off guard. He tried to run to the airlock door to push the abort button, but tripped over his helmet and fell into a mess of wires still connected to the wall. Then, to his horror, the outside airlock door started opening and the air was quickly pulled into the vacuum of space. Stan just stayed there, trying to hold onto the wires and crawl towards the inner door. He remembered his academy training. Let all the air escape your lungs and keep your eyes closed. There was a perfect silence, for what felt like an eternity. 
Murtic was chatting with his assistant and walking down the corridor leading to the airlock. He was carrying a replacement pump for the human CVA suit when he saw the blinking lights around the airlock door. He immediately understood that something had gone really wrong. He raced to the airlock's control panel and had the outer door closed immediately. His mind was racing. The human must most probably dead, being exposed to space's vacuum. This would have been fatal to any Kishtari. Their air bladders were fragile and they're prone to internal hemorrhages from exposed to low pressure. But no, Stan was in pretty bad shape, but he was alive and well. He was bleeding from one ear and regained consciousness within a few minutes. He managed a weak smile when he saw Murtic's familiar silhouette leaning over him. Stan, what were you trying to achieve? Murtic was feeling a rush of mixed emotions. Before Stan could answer, the suit's monitor console pinged and displayed a message in blocky green Terran characters. Decompression test successful. EVA suit parameters optimal. Murtic looked at Stan for a long few seconds with a puzzled look. Stan just grinned and gave him a thumbs up. The Kastari report sent to Fleet Admiral Kodor gave a detailed description of the incident and contained three recommendations. One, avoid using violet colors for emergency buttons, as humans don't see very well in that part of the light spectrum. Two, Humans are incredibly tough and can survive a catastrophic decompression as well as one full minute in the void of space. No other known species can survive such an ordeal. 3. Don't ever, ever leave a human alone with complex equipment. They might do something really stupid out of boredom. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1487 The Human Invasion Written by Arinet. Humanity was a recent addition to the galactic community. Just under seven years had passed since the first contact was made between us and the Galactic Council. How faster than night capabilities were inefficient but improving. Our military tactics were standard, though our space combat doctrine was underdeveloped. In almost always, us humans were a perfectly average species. And we were quickly and peacefully invited to the Galactic Council as a junior member. Despite all of this, just a few short weeks ago, the human invasion had started. I was standing behind a lowered coat, dressed to kill. There were three of us standing in formation. The air was thick with anxiety, and Yahi was fiddling with the pack at his waist off to my left. Her voice came over the earpiece that I had. Showtime in less than a minute. Good luck. The voice was compressed to the point that I couldn't tell who it was. From beyond the curtain, I could hear the show's host talking. You know them. You love them. And for the first time ever, you can see them live. Here for the first galactic extra act appearance, performing their number one hit song, Baby, I Love You. Please give it up for Velvet Sound. The curtain dropped and the lights turned on above us. The screams of the crowd were deafening. But we were professionals. Not even a wince at the noise nor did we miss a beat as the music came on. 
The next four minutes were a blur of singing and dancing and cheering fans. At one point, when I wasn't near the front, I noticed a disapproving glares from the parents. Same as it ever was, I suppose. Before I knew it, the song was over and we were taking our bows. The easy part was done. A performance was a performance, even if the crowd was a bunch of aliens. The hard part would be the album signing that we had to do in 25 minutes. While humans were physically average and technologically underdeveloped, there was no species in the galaxy with as rich and diverse a culture. Not that the galaxy took notice at first. Such an unremarkable species was easy to ignore, especially as accessing human media was difficult. That all changed three months ago when, after years of hard work translating books and movies, intriguing programs, and securing broadcasting rights across the galactic space, the human internet was finally integrated into the galactic extranet. At first, there was little change. A few aliens checked out what we humans had to offer out of curiosity. But it quickly grew from that. Word spread around the galaxy that the humans were making music unlike anything that they'd heard before. Hypnotic melodies and radically new chord progressions. Stories longer and more complicated than what would be written before. Provocative dances and otherworldly clothing. A revolution was coming to the galactic media, and it was coming fast. I'd like to say it started in earnest when Velvet Sound released our second album. Our debut had been a huge success back on Earth, and soon Yahi, Victor, and I were household names to humans. A pretty simple pop boy band, but one that had avoided the overt sci-fi theming that had taken over the media since first contact. Authentically human, we were called and to a galaxy beginning to obsess over human music, that was the best thing to be. Our security guard was leading us to the signing location. He was a logodron, meaning that he was tall, hairy, and gray. Large ears, good for listening for threats, looked a bit like a koala, if a koala was six foot nine and built like a truck. Hard to tell how he was feeling about the position escorting a human boy band, Logodron faces weren't physically expressive like ours. Instead, they communicated through pheromones and subvocalizations lower than natural human hearing range. They still appreciated human music, however. If the Logodron I could see waiting in line were anything to go by. The actual hall that we would be spending the next two hours in was, honestly, quite boring. While humans did tend to be quite a bit more architecturally bold than other species, there was really only so many ways that you could make a big empty room and lay out some tables and fences in it. Interior design was frankly the only creative pursuit where human stars weren't more developed or numerous than the alien alternatives. I honestly felt bad for the security here, especially the ones that had come from a species with more sensitive hearing. The moment we took our seats for the event, an ear-piercing scream went out. Even a few years of experience back in human space hadn't prepared us for this. I looked at Victor, and we shared a pained smile and winced. One of the species, frankly, uh, I'm not sure which, had screeched at a pitch so unnaturally high as to literally feel like it was piercing our ears. 
After that, however, the actual event ran smoothly. After all, we in the band had been coached extensively in the weeks leading up to our trip to Capital Station. Close to 60 species living on the station, though human music was probably only appealed to half of them. Regardless, though, we had to learn proper English translations of 60 languages, where to look and how to respectfully shake the hands or equivalents, signs of happiness, sadness, or offense. It was exhausting, and we had been running on maybe two hours of sleep up to the night before our performance, but it paid off. What somehow no one had anticipated was the fact that our fans could and would do the same research on human customs and behavior. This led to a somewhat awkwardness, although nothing that couldn't be laughed off. The occasional handshake or high-five mix-up that occurred when species had different numbers of configurations of limbs. In one case, I went to do the customary bow for the Milawa fan. The Milau were the quadrupedal race, reminiscent of sheep. Unlike sheep, however, they had four long, dexterous tails that had used to manipulate tools. As I went to bow, however, my head hit something solid. Looking up, the Mulau had in their tails a prosthetic human arm that they were holding out to me. The highlight, however, were the fans that attempted to flirt with us. This was nothing particularly new, and we were briefed on some of the courtship displays of the species that we would probably be encountering. And, much like handshakes, some fans learned human courtship displays in turn. What most stood out to me was when the Rishu fan made her move on Victor. Rishu were remarkably human in appearance, save for the presence of two extra pairs of arms, blue skin, and six eyes arranged in a crescent across their forehead. This one particular Rishu had been getting her album signed by Victor, and was about to move on to get it signed by Yai He when she stopped and asked a simple question. Did it hurt? Now, this was concerning and confusing. She hadn't seemed to take any action to hurt us, but maybe she had accidentally done something that we hadn't noticed. Did what hurt? Victor replied, trying to hide his confusion. What followed was the first and only time that I've seen a Rishu take on a shit-eating grin, as she answered. When you fell from heaven... She proceeded to wink with all three of the eyes on her left side at the same time. It took everything in me not to burst out laughing right then and there. Not out of any malicious, but from the sheer absurdity of the life that I had found myself living. Like I said, aside from an awkward cross-species moment, the album signing went off well. Almost all the fans were respectful, and we were, for our part, excited to meet them. Notably less excited and respectful, however, were the protesters waiting outside the event. While most of the galaxy was enthralled by humanity, the explosive success was triggering a just as explosive backlash, and as the vanguard of human cultural moment, we were the target of the vitriol. The objectors to human culture were a varied bunch. Some identified the possibility of long-term human cultural dominance as a threat to their own cultures, some of the more militant or scholarly species viewed human culture as a corruption. The moralists felt that humanity's romanticization of sex, drugs, and individualism would create a generation of selfish psychopaths. 
The intellectuals felt the human culture numbed the brain and would create a generation wanting to pursue the useless arts instead of going into the more valuable sciences. Whatever the reasons, however, the small minority of people certainly didn't seem so small when they were united, and a few hundred of them were blocking our way to the car that would take us to the hotel. We kept smiles on our faces as they held signs decrying us as simple apes, and held our heads high as they called us to be thrown into either the army, jail, or the vacuum of space. As soon as the doors to the car were shut, however, I felt a tear trickle down my face. Finally, after a day's worth of stress, of awkward moments, of vicious threats, I allowed myself to relax out of my public persona. I took a shuddering breath and looked up as I felt two hands on my shoulders. Victor and Yahi were looking at me with watery smiles, no doubt feeling the same way. We'd made it through the first day of our galactic debut. The opening salvo of the human invasion had been fired. The first of many that would follow in the coming years as the other species started to dig further and further into human culture. For me, Victor and Yahi, though, there was little time to think of matters like that. By the time we had arrived at the hotel, our manager had called a meeting to start preparing us for an interview the next morning. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1488. Story number one. And yo, by the way, written by Echoing Cascade. Chief Security Gasari was scrambling to put on his armor. He and his first response team had been called to secure 12 escaped Mysoran prisoners who had managed to board the station in the middle of the night. He was told that the escaped prisoners had entered the only open establishment in the promenade and had likely taken hostages by now. Sorry. What in the hell is open at this time anyway? One of the soldiers under his command checked his data pad and snorted. Soldier. Pandemonium. Gasari snuffed, putting on his armor as he did the rest of his team. He remembered the date and tried very hard, but failed to suppress a grin from forming on his face. Change your plans, newbie. Go get some snacks from the fridge. Someone hook up the pandemonium security cams in the situation room's main screen. This is, is going to be good. After they had taken place around the table and the security chief had made it very clear, that he hadn't seen his soldiers making bets. He started to eat some rather unhealthy snacks, and everyone went quiet as the show began. Teresa was an edge. Escaping from a prison transport would do that to a guy, but it wasn't his only source of unease. A few minutes ago, he and his fellow escapees had entered a darkly lit eatery, some sort which was packed with sentient races, none of which he recognized. That alone would be worrisome, but the fact that they paid very little attention to twelve armed Mysorans kicking the door in, demanding that everyone lay down and continued eating and drinking, was worse. Now the bipedal creature behind the bar was approaching them with some sort of green liquid in large pints. Calm down, friends. Uh, first drinks on the house. After all, today everyone is a little higher. Before he could finish his sentence, Teresha shot him in the shoulder with a pulse carbine. 
A few gasps of shock and worry could be heard. They shot the barkeep. I know the crappy souls is overpriced, but dude, not cool. Barkeep, uh, good. Teresa, yes, this is better. That's how things are supposed to be. But to his ever-increasing dread, the voices in the dark started to sound angry, and he could see fangs, claws, and hear the sound of weapons leaving their holsters. Barkeep! Avenge! Oh! You've wrecked up now! Hi! Before Teresa could register, another member of the same species as the barkeep, wearing combat fatigues, materialized in front of him. He tried to point his carbine at the soldier, but the man in fatigues had already punched him below the armpit. He felt the bones crack, then break, then shift inside his body and finally perforate some other rather important organs, at which point he flopped to the ground, twitching. The remaining Mysorans looked nervously at the scene unfolding, as the many customers began to get up from the seat. Oh, by the patriarch! He killed Teresa! The man who had just punched the de facto leader into a heap waved his hand in dismissal. Oh, I didn't kill him. He's just in shock. While the other Mysorans let out a sigh of relief, the marine lifted his boot off the ground and then brought it down on Teresa's neck with a sickening crunch. See ya! Now he's dead! From the corner of the dark ceiling, a slimy pseudopod extended towards the door, locked it, and destroyed the fragile mechanism. The eleven Mysorans were now in a circle, shooting all around them in a blind panic. Someone put some music on, would you? Don't want to upset the neighbors. From the bar stereo, an old earth song by the House of Pain began to blare. You see, I'm Irish, but I am not a leprechaun. You want to fight, then you step up, and you'll get it on. You'll get a right real grill. I might, and I'll ill. A descendant of Dublin with titanic skill. Gasari chuckled as he turned the feed off. He could hear some very heated discussions on who won the bet, and what constitutes cheating behind him. Only bar that specializes on death for all the food and drink in the sector... And these poor sods had to go and shoot the bartender on St. Patrick's Day. Oh well, we'll pick up what's left in the morning. End of story. Story number two. How the Galaxy Wages War. Written by Kennel. The Zile is bored, but the broadcasts say that he shouldn't be for long. His job as a janitor and a fabricator is mind-numbing. Sweeping up stray nanite dust, mucking out the heat sinks and dumping the waste back into the hopper. Oh sure, it is an important job. His fabricator makes fully 5% of the disposable drinking tubes his homeworld uses. He shakes his head as he stands in the tube transit train, speeding towards his stop for home. He doesn't want to think about his work right now. No, he wants to think about the war. The latest season of war starts today, after all. Last season ended with quite an upset, with the Lingots coming from behind with an amazing display of coordinated explosives and troop movements to totally serve the Vrytel's paratroopers' air belay. Even better, the latest space-faring race has had war declared on them. The humans are definitely the underdogs of season two, 
Everyone has seen the dull design of their, uh, everything. Drab greys and greens and browns, and not a sequence or tassel in sight. Don't they know how to intimidate the foe into surrender like the rest of the galaxy? Still, the Zile had a suspicion that the humans had something planned. After all, they're a predator species with no discernible natural weapons. They wouldn't be the first ambush predators to do well in the war, if they do well. And that's why he moves as quickly as his five legs will allow him once he exits the tube train. He'll have just enough time to prepare something unhealthy to enjoy while watching the show. As the challenged, the humans had the right to choose the battleground and the duty to build the stadium for the war. They chose an odd design and location too. The stadium was large enough for 10,000 seats and other various platforms for moderately comfortable relaxation. But it also left large gaps of blank wall and floor between sections. The Grohl didn't mind this though. They'd be perfect places to set up an artillery and give a good show. And give a good show they do. Their army marchers stepping perfectly together, firing at targets at the exact same moment. And for the finale, they break apart into smaller regiments and move with precision choreography to avoid the massive fireballs their artillery rained down. The crowd cheers at the display, knowing the humans have little hope in topping that. The Gorel were the champions for two seasons ago, after all. They certainly aim to start off on the right tentacle this season too. Still, the crowd quiets as the lights start to dim, signaling the humans are going to begin their battle soon. It takes a few moments for the crowd to realize the lights can't be dimmed. This is an outdoor stadium. They have to dim the star. Eyes and other various photoreceptors are pointed skywards and see the local star is dimming and the light is being blocked out by the human fleet. A telltale twinkling of the ship's fire accompanies a song that starts to play. The first impacts of orbital bombardment sinking perfectly with the flare of the trumpets. The timing was impressive, but the impacts are far outside the Colosseum, lessening the ability for the audience to truly appreciate them. An orbital lance peers down into the center of the arena and soon separate into many orbiting lasers from above. The gaps between the sections of the seating become obvious as the lances pass through them, vaporizing the dead space and leaving just the occupied stands. The very ground seems to rumble to the rhythm as the crowd feels the impacts below them, and those at the stage edge can confirm that the others felt Tanks have rammed the supports, and the stands now sit atop war machines, their wide balls playing the bass beat as they turn their treads in opposite directions, facing the crowds towards the outside, rather than in. Arcs of lightning tear great wounds into the surroundings as they sing the song in a display of power and precision. Electronic and sonic hurts creating a dichotomously sweet voice over the distraction, the words promising terror. Armies of horrors march in a terrifying and slow cadence with the music. Why should they hurry when their prey has nowhere to run? They get close together, chant the bombardment and the music momentarily quieting to let the soldiers' promise of doom to be clearly heard. 
the macabre march, never missing a beat of a single boot. The final orbital strike lands on the horde's laugh. Low and terrifying. The Xyle stares at the screen. His forgotten snack, now warmed to room temperature. Star of wonder, he swears, still processing what he just saw. The show breaks to commercial, and once back, the same horror soldiers are helping the audience down from the stands in the background. The host of the war giving the human general an interview. Well, uh, that was quite an impressive start to the season, General. Uh, do you have anything to say to what would surely of billions of new fans? The general thinks for a moment and then nods. That is us being nice. When those Glorals declared war, we were getting ready to do that to their manufacturing. And then we got the contract in the mail. In the end, we figured this was a good idea. After all, if we can put them in their place without actually killing any of them, well, uh, that'll be a magnum opus to the art of war. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1489 Waste Management, written by H. Dufort Coda sat at his desk angrily with his paw, which made Trolloc's blood drain from his face. Crap. There we go again. The fleet admiral looked very pissed. Torek looked down, his hands shaking, not even trying to keep his composure anymore. I know bloody well what happened on your ship, Captain Torek. Or should I say now, <laughs> Ensign Torek. I have read the reports. My superiors have read the reports. Everyone has read the bloody reports. It's all over the news. And they're the laughing stock of the whole galaxy. Now for the last time. I want you to explain it to me in details without trying to gloss it over. You're not saving your rear. You're way beyond that. Torek slowly looked up, his eyes wet with fierce secretions, and started telling his story for the hundredth time. When we learned that a group of humans was to be embedded in our crew, we swiftly made our due diligence. No glossing over, interjected Coda showing his upper fangs and growling more quietly. We, uh, we sent our, our science team on, on a quest to find out as much information as possible on human needs and, uh, uh cohabitation challenges. But as you know, sir, uh, the, the whole thing was rushed. Uh, we had very little time to adapt the ship systems and uh, very little information to work with. Coda's gaze was as hard as a crystalline rock. Torek's whining made him angry. Torek paused for a few seconds, trying to catch his breath. But his lungs felt numb. He swallowed some saliva loudly, then continued, We, um, we sent human biological parameters to the team responsible for biological adaptation. We have a small team of xenobiologists. Uh, the, the whole thing was rushed. We, uh, um... They came back with a list of standard recommendations. Uh, humans are carbon-based, oxygen-dependent creatures who can live just fine within the ship's standardized habitat. Uh, they require just 20% oxygen for their gaseous exchanges, and they have very little tolerance for CO2. 
They, they, they can live with higher oxygen levels, so we left the atmospheric controls unchanged and added a little bit of water vapor to the... Coda's face twisted into a sardonic smile. You don't have to explain to me how to make a Baalbeck cake. As the saying goes, tell me how you serve your guest, not how you put the icing on the cake. Food metaphors. Coda was beyond furious. Torek paused again to wipe some glistening droplets of fierce secretions away from his whiskers. A gesture indicating retreat from sight. In any normal setting. But no retreat was possible from Coda's gaze. So he swallowed his saliva and kept going. We, we, we adapted the cleaning room apparatus to add artificial waterfalls showers uh, that the humans seemed to like very much, and uh, we added the, the, the so-called uh, swivel chairs in, in all the meeting rooms. 3D printed them from a model we found in the human culture repository called uh, Walmart. Uh, then it hit us. What hit you? Waste management. We have a dozen different species on board, and they all produce waste, of course. The Fori have a complex set of skin folds diffusing waste molecules into their environment, which uh, is why they wear a scrub suit at all times when on board a Federation vessel. The Nerms ha have hard shells covering their whole body, and their waste uh, slowly accumulates in a neutral colloid solution, which they expel only once a year. In a waste pouch. In fact, I don't think we've ever had the facility for humans. Focus on humans. So, uh, uh yes, sir. Uh, um, humans. We had dozens of humans coming on board, and we started calculating their waste products and deciding on a management strategy. The standard waste elimination apparatus, which um they call a a flush toilet would generate way too much volume. We devised a, a more efficient but still comfortable waste extraction apparatus. Uh, we also figured that they could just empty their bladder fluid into a dry funnel. Their waste fluid is not a big concern, and we discovered that we could extract useful nitrogen from it to boost vegetable production for our vegetarian crew. We, uh... Again, Torek! I don't care about the icing. We, um then discovered that the major challenge would be to handle the, the solid waste. A challenge with the humans! <laughs> you don't say! Coda hissed, rolling his eyes and retracting his whiskers, making sure his body language was the very expression of contempt. Tarek sighed discreetly and continued. Humans produce quite a lot of solid waste, uh, ten times more waste than any other species we have on board, in fact. They seem to produce never-ending string of solid waste, uh, packages, and they have to go quite often to the disposal unit. At least one per human cycle, we were told. Uh, some humans can even use the time to read the news or play networked video games while sitting on the disposal unit, which is uh, something nobody in their right mind would ever consider doing. You know, how we, for instance, take waste disposal very seriously, so... Don't they have any pride? This is appalling. Some of them spent quite a lot of time doing that. One of the humans was even singing popular music at the times. A anyway, as the ship's adaptation went, um, we had to increase the, the number of waste disposal stations on, on the ship. 
from 4 to 26, making sure the humans were never more than, than 20 beeps away from one anywhere on the ship. Um, and we had to completely redesign the cargo hold area to fit the much bigger waste material rolling tank. This time, it was Coda who sighed. Oh, keep going. We thought we had everything right. The, the lighting had been adapted to please the human senses, since they have a quasi-nocturnal vision to tolerate less lighting than most species. The crew had been given the standardized nanovaccines against the other species' pathogens, and we had real-time translators set up in no time. Then, um, one, one week into our voyage, we, uh, it, um... Tarek stopped and looked down, trying to find his words. One of our engineers came back to the bridge with a puzzling report. The waste tank pressure was higher than predicted, then ran some tests but found that the solid matter level was within the normal range, considering all the parameters. But still, the pressure was climbing. Dodo frowned, then pulled out his tablet, swiped a few times and checked the report. Yes, uh, I have your engineer's report here. The pressure build-up was linear, and it had started on day one, but your waste management engineers chose not to report it. Tarek ignored Coda's comment and continued with his report. Uh, on day 20, uh, the tank was only 10% full, according to waste level sensors. The pressure had reached critical levels. One of our engineers, um, Tobik, suggested that the pressure sensor, which is a single sensor with no redundancy, might be faulty. We agreed to turn off the sensor and have the whole waste tank replaced at our next stop. Except that, um, we, 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 uh, we didn't make it that far. The waste tank exploded. The waste tank bloody exploded, repeated Coda. And why is that so, Doric? Can you explain to me as if I'm popped out of the exact? We, uh, we, we, we didn't know it at the time, but uh, human solid waste is, uh, active. Humans are a highly symbiotic species with a complex internal e ecosystem. They literally are full of bacteria. They're, they're, they're walking cesspools. Torek stopped, wondering if the last comment had been too harsh, but Coda let him continued. When the tank ruptured, the whole cargo area and the lower decks were contaminated with the solid particles. Toxic methane gas flowed into the atmospheric control system, destroying the delicate gas exchange membranes. We, uh, nearly had to abandon ship, but then the whole crew managed to gather into the emergency chambers, where an autonomous life support system kept them alive until help arrived. We were then ferried to quarantine facility on Sirius 3, while the special team in hazmat suits decontaminated my... the, uh, ship. Tell me, Doric, do you understand why exactly the tank ruptured? Do you know what you could have done to prevent this? Doric opened his mouth, then closed it, then opened it again. I, 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 I know what happened. Human engineers explained to us that human solid waste is not only active, but it also acts as a, a bioreactor. I, I won't go into the technical details because, quite frankly... I'm not sure I understand everything. But there are complex biomechanical reactions, resulting in emission of a large amount of methane gas, combined with other species' waste products, which are uh, rich in carbohydrates. The human waste bioreactor uh, 
I went into overdrive. This is what ruptured the waste tank on my, uh, on the ship. Now, uh, what could we have done better? Um, uh, at the time, we, we had no idea, and I had not received the memo- You had received the memo, Torek! You just didn't read it! I, uh, had not grasped the memo's importance, sadly. Uh, we could have treated the act of human waste with UV radiation. Or we could have just cryo-freezed it, which seems to be the preferred approach now in Federation ships. Uh, using a, a separate tank, we could have then transferred the waste products to a nearest human colony, where it would have been recycled as a fertilizer. So tell Doric, how did the humans manage to live for five days in the emergency chambers without any working waste management units at their uh, disposal? Uh... One of them was an engineer, um, he immediately started designing a small, simple waste containment unit which was then 3D printed within the hour. Uh, the 12 humans used it for 5 days and, uh, sometimes there was quite the lineup. Uh, some, uh, made jokes about the l learning process for their pups they call, uh, uh, potty training. The crafty humans stored their waste into small bags with zippers, then they shoved it into a food freezer. And what do they call this improvised waste management unit, Torek? Yeah, a, a porta potty, sir. End of story. Story number one: An old promise written by Echoing Cascade. Gorham had thought the hive incursion on the planet would never reach his tiny little village. He was wrong. The attack had begun an hour ago, and the little defenses they could muster were crumbling already. A large centipede-like creature ran past the barricade that he was holding, as it began to curl itself and spikes protruding from its body. They had seen this before. It was about to explode. Everyone ran away from the creature, except him, and not by chance. His injured leg made this impossible. Except someone was running towards the creature. With the heavy steps, an armored soldier, easily twice his size, ran and kicked the living grenade away from Corum. As it exploded, two spikes pierced the soldier's arm and abdomen. The giant then took a syringe from a pouch and injected the contents into his neck. My sh shuttle is at the back. Take it. I'll hold them off. Two of his friends ran back and helped to get Coram to the escape vessel. As he looked back, his savior began to laugh as he fired on full auto at the oncoming wave of Guyton. When Coram came back from the capital, accompanying the troops sent to retake the village, he saw what remained like a miracle. The soldier was sitting on a rock at the entrance to the village, his arm and stomach crudely bandaged. He had a smile on his face and was smoking a cigar. His name was Apone. He was a human ranger. He had been part of the Alliance crew that was in orbit monitoring the hive progress. He had noticed the attack on our village and volunteered for a rescue mission. Now orders were to observe. For five damn months, all we did was watch. His eyes turned dark and Coram noticed that they quickly brightened again. Luckily, two days ago, we were told to engage at our discretion. The boys uh, would have loved to join me, but I made the call and came alone. Couldn't risk them bugs getting access to too much human DNA to evolve themselves with. 
Gorham learned that opponent was a sergeant, a lower rank officer in the Hewan army. Before leaving, Quorum asked him to return one day to show him around. Bone smiled. It's a promise. I'll bring my kid, Manula. She always wanted to travel, and my tour is nearly done. Days turned into weeks, then months, and finally three years had passed and Apone had still not returned. Quorum took it upon himself to track down the man who he owed his life. When he approached the human embassy and explained why he was tracking the ranger, the woman at the desk smiled and began searching. It wasn't long before she found the answer, and a smile dropped. Coram walked from the embassy to the ship that had taken him to the capital in a daze. He couldn't believe what he'd been told. He wouldn't. He vowed to conduct his own search. But it was true. The man who had faced the Hive army to save him and his village had died on the streets, homeless and forgotten. After his return to civilian life, he had tried to reintegrate, but failed. He had nightmares about what he had seen, what he had done, but what really haunted him was what he hadn't done. His temper suffered from lack of sleep and became extremely irritable. Alcohol helped dull his senses, but being drunk most of the time cost him his job. When his wife left him, it was the final straw. Being separated from her and his daughter was more than he could bear. He left his rented apartment one day and wasn't found or heard of until months later when he was found dead. Quorum couldn't understand why, how something like this could happen. Such a man, such a hero, forgotten, left to die on the streets, left to rot. He had no problem convincing the elders to build a statue of Sergeant Pone at the village entrance. He would personally tell his story to anyone who had asked who he was, so his sacrifice would never be forgotten. Quorum was an old man now. His species did not live very long, and it had been over a decade since the monument had been put in place. Yet he still came out of his habitation to tell Apone's story when any visitor or newcomer asked about the statue. Today, his grandson had come running to fetch him. He said only two words. It's her. Gorham stood next to the young woman. She was looking at the statue. They depicted Sergeant Tapone, bandaged arm and abdomen, sitting on a rock, smoking a cigar, a broad smile on his face. You know how he lived, the young woman nodded, never taking her eyes off the statue. Do uh, you know how he died? The young woman's lips quivered, but she eventually nodded. Gorham then extended his hand towards her. She took it, and they began to walk inside the village. Would you like to see all that he saved? The young woman was sobbing now, but rallied quickly. Manula. Yes. End of story. Story number two. The problem with human contractors. Written by Dangerous Dingleberry. To Stacy Bellingham, Human Resource Coordinator, Distinct Developments Incorporated.
from Jensen Alamaster, Senior Vice President of Planetary Development, Chiron 5, regarding difficulty with human development crew. Miss Bellingham, I must write to express my disappointment in your insistence that we contact humans to develop one of our recently sterilized Chiron system planets. Your species has become problematic and has caused us to miss several KPIs in the last three years. Prior to development, any planet found to have a suitable environment for our species is checked for sentient life. If none is found, we proceed to complete sterilization of the planet using our patented Gamma Blast copyright treatment, which eliminated all planetary life. We then bring in developers to reconfigure the planet to one that is pleasant to our species. With none of the many pathogens or toxic plants and insects that have plagued our species for so long. After decades of searching, we found an ideal planet in the Chiron system. This planet was specifically chosen because it has a thick atmosphere that blocks the incoming chiral radiation and the temperature range at all but the most extreme locations on the poles stay comfortable all year. We have almost always used our own species for development, assuming that they would be the best suited for creating a world to their liking. However, we took your recommendation and brought in humans for the work. As you explained in your proposal, humans are very adaptable and can convert wastelands into paradise in a single generation, each lasting roughly 80 of their celestial years, about 10% of our lifespans. A small contingent would populate and improve the world, he said. But once their work was done, they would be happy to move to a place with more luxuries and nicer weather, and we would move our own people in to enjoy the rebuilt world. This has not been the case. These humans flourish in this temperature, and they are happy to work in the sun all day, a feat that could kill all but the hardiest of our species. And when work is over, they go to the beach and bask in the restorative sun, or splash around in the salinized water while wearing no protective clothing. They have planted vast orchards, huge fields of grains, stocked the oceans with fish, planted dense forests, and brought in wild game, all of which we agreed to and financed. This abundance of satisfying work, good food, and disease-free environment has caused these death-world-evolved humans to live longer and remain healthy well beyond their normal lifespan. They have reproduced, which we expected. But their successors also work hard, lay on the beach, and refuse to wear clothes. We've offered them significant sums of money, their own interplanetary ships, and even a place on a different world, but they refuse to leave. Though they are incredibly kind in their insistence, we also tried forcing them off the planet by introducing a bacterial compound that converts the sugar in the harvested grains to toxic ethanol. But we may have accidentally made things better, because humans apparently enjoy the feeling of being poisoned. They even take this ruined grain with them to the beach, where they lay in the sun and drink it all day. This is as far as a company is willing to take it. The humans are not in breach of contract, but we can't bring in our own citizens until they have left. Our people cannot share a planet with such a gregarious species. It goes against our isolationist culture, 
and may be unhealthy for our species as a whole. Several of our principal investors are leaving the project for other developments. Your company is responsible for contracting the human development crews, and we expect you to remove them immediately. Sincerely, Jensen Alamastus. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1491 Someone to Love, written by Space Paladin 15 It was difficult to get hired in a technological sector. Many of us devoted our lives to the profession, hoping to rise up the ranks of cybernetic implants giant StarTech one day. Fame, fortune, power. A StarTech executive could have all of it. But with applicants from across the galaxy and from all walks of life, you had to stand out from the crowd to get selected. I was determined to succeed at all costs. My acceptance into the most prestigious university in our sector was one of the proudest moments of my life. My commitment and enthusiasm did not wane despite the grueling workload. The stress would not break me. I spent hours poring over textbooks and pulled many stimulant-fueled all-nighters to perfect my coding. A constant cloud of exhaustion hovering over me. But I knew that the payoff would be worth it in the end. Thanks to my dedication, I aced my final exams and graduated as valedictorian of my class. I couldn't submit my application to StarTech fast enough. Hiring me... Had to be a no-brainer for them, I assured myself. After all, my scores were off the charts in every field. Sure enough, StarTech was impressed by my application and hired me on the spot. Now that I was in the door, I just had to keep on grinding until I made it to the top. I was going to be someone, someday. Curiosity made me delve into who my rival would be. I was confident and my own abilities. I just wanted to know who I was up against. You see, StarTech only hires two individuals from each class, the two that they believe will be the best fit for the company, and I was rather surprised to see the other hire was a Terran. Dylan Anderson was the first human graduate from any top school in the galaxy. Against all odds, he had ranked amongst the top 10% of his class. An impressive feat. Earth had only achieved FTL a few cycles ago, and was still pretty new to the interstellar scene. According to our assessment, the average human did not have a strong work drive. It was their custom to have typical ships around 9 to 10 hours, and to have numerous off days, and vacation days, their phrase, as well. Competing against such a lazy species would make my life much easier. But I wondered why. Knowing this, StarTech had chosen Dylan. Especially when they'd have to abide by the Terran labor laws within human employees as per Federation's treaty with Earth. My first month at the company was in the books, and I think I had already made an excellent impression on the brass. I'd barely slept or left the office since they gave me my first assignment. It was painfully slow process, sorting through thousands of lines of code, but I'd managed to complete the task a week before the due date. If I could keep the working at this pace, I would be promoted in no time. The bosses assured me. Dylan, however, 
was not such a standout employee. He seemed to be doing the absolute bare minimum to keep his job. Despite having double the amount of time than I did and a shorter task to complete, he only submitted his work three minutes before the deadline. Near the end, the code was sloppy and riddled with errors. The human had been more than happy to try and socialize with his fellow employees while we were all supposed to be working. Most people tried to brush him off, but a few seemed to indulge his pointless conversations. I ignored him the one time that he made his way over to my cubicle. Was he trying to sabotage the rest of us to get ahead? Either way, I was not going to let him distract me from my work. I overheard bits and pieces of his chatter despite my best efforts to ignore him. Dylan loved to complain about working, often saying that he could not wait to go home. He talked about his girlfriend and what sort of future they might have together. He asked others about their personal lives as well. Who cared for any of that? We were here to work, not make friends. Honestly, I would be surprised if the human made it a year with StarTech. The Employee of the Year award rested proudly on my desk. My new, spacious desk in a private office. I'd been promoted to overseer, and better yet, a small ceremony had been held to give me the award. A smile had stretched across my face as the Star Tech CEO called me an exemplary coder and presented me with the plaque. The employees watching stared on with jealousy, as expected. Well, all except one. That foolish human had applauded me as though he was actually happy for me. I was baffled by his behavior. Did he not understand that we were rivals? It was as though work was some sort of game to him. Dylan had somehow lasted five years with the company now. He wasn't actively harming the company, though a bit of human laziness had started to rub off on the other employees. A few disgruntled coders were asking for less hours for their days off with pay. Still, with no clear-cut reason to let your human go, firing him would risk a species discrimination lawsuit. A knock on the door snapped me out of my thoughts. Sir, here are the files you requested. A worker set a few papers down on my desk and exited. Now that I had clearance to review employee information, I thought I'd look into Dylan's history. After flipping through his background and transcripts, I found the hiring team's comments on the last page. Humans are known to score highly in sociability, which we believe may offset their lowered productivity. Dylan is intelligent enough to keep up with the demands of our work. It is our recommendation to hire him, understanding that his contributions will be primarily in a support role. Dylan had arrived at that time, and I told him to come in. I decided the best way to get to the bottom of this was to ask him in person. He seemed a bit nervous as he was seated across from me. Why did you applaud me at the awards ceremony? I asked, cutting right to the chase. We are competitors. Competitors? He echoed. We all work together for the same goal. We're on the same team. Why wouldn't I cheer you on? I stared at him, dumbfounded. He seemed so genuine in what he had just said but it was hard to believe that he was serious. Dylan shifted awkwardly in his seat. Um, by the way, I, I was meaning to ask you, um, can I get an extension on my deadline? 
It's a holiday weekend back on Earth, and uh, I want to spend it with my family. Forcing down a sigh of exasperation, I nodded. Humans had their priorities all wrong, putting family over success. This is why I was going places, and Dylan was not. Fifteen years working at StarTech had vanished in the blink of an eye. I was now the head of marketing and second in command in the entire company. Some days I wasn't sure how I kept going, but I knew I wanted this with every fiber of my being. The energy of youth had left my blood some time ago. Still, I spent most of my waking moments glued to a hollow screen. I was so close to being in charge of the most profitable company in the galaxy. It was just one more step up the ladder to achieve the greatness that I'd always dreamed of. I just had to keep going a little while longer. If I stopped now, someone younger and faster would pass me. Not that many younger employees shared my work ethic anymore. Demands for vacation days and fewer working hours became more and more vocal over the years, as much of our staff was swayed by the human policies. We thought about firing Dylan, but when word got out, low-level coders threatened to walk out. The human was too popular. We finally gave in to the requests, and a few months ago, deciding that it was the only way to stop the protests from escalating further. Dylan would walk around the office a few times a day, making the rounds to chat with others. He was usually greeted with enthusiasm, and many questions were thrown his way about his wife and son. He also often hosted events and gatherings outside of work. For some reason, he made it a point of personally inviting me to each of them. I always rejected them, of course. I did not have the time for such silly affairs, but the look in his eyes each time I turned him down stuck with me. It was as though he felt sorry for me. Why would he pity me? I was racking up wealth beyond what he could make in a lifetime, and I presided over the great many people. My eyes burned from staring at the screen too long as the human stepped into my office once again. I felt strangely numb, as if I were acting on autopilot. Dylan asked me to attend a dinner party at his house, and I became dimly aware that somewhere in my mind, I wanted to go. But a firm rejection was all that came out of my mouth. I had work to do. Fame, fortune, power, all of it was in my grasp now. With my abundance of wealth, I purchased a luxurious space station residence and an extravagant shuttle. I was the face of Star Trek, the guy who appeared in all the talk shows, gave speeches at schools, and consulted with stellar meters. It was the life I dreamed of about as a kid, but neither my station nor my positions bought me happiness. The better part of my life had slipped through my fingers, and I'd not even noticed it pass me by. Where had all the time gone? What had all of my effort been for? I was achingly lonely, and there was nothing I could do about it. I tried to keep myself working, mainly because it was all I knew how to do. Dylan entered my office one day as I was half-heartedly typing away, clearing his throat to get my attention. Time had taken its toll on the human, turning his hair grey and etching wrinkles on his forehead. 
but his eyes shone as brightly as they did decades ago when he was fresh hires out of college. He had only meager savings to his name and had stayed in the same position for most of his life. I wondered, not for the first time, why he was so happy. Dylan took a deep breath. I wanted to talk to you, boss, Sam. I'm going to retire at the end of the year. It's been an honor. Thank you for everything. I nodded, wondering why I felt a tinge of sadness at the news. Very well. Make sure you fill out the proper form and give sufficient notice to your supervisors. Dylan had stopped inviting me to social outings long ago. I suppose he had finally tired of receiving the same flat response to each of his offers. But he must have seen something in my eyes at that moment that encouraged him to try one last time. Um, a group of us uh, from the office are meeting our families at the park at lunch break. Why don't you come? He asked. Well, uh, I suppose I could find a bit of time. Uh, just this once, I answered. A smile crossed his face. Great, I'll see you there. The park was a short walk away from the building, and I second-guessed myself as I strolled across the grassy knoll. I spotted Dylan standing hand in hand with an aged woman, smiling as they watched two young children play by the fountain. The kids splashed around in the water and chased each other without a care in the world. That strange, sad feeling was there again, tingling in my chest. I hesitated before walking over to the human couple. Those are cute kids, he laughed. Thank you, uh... They are my granddaughters. I've always thought that there's more to life than work. The people you care about are what really matters. Once I thought that Dylan had his priorities backwards, placing family above work. But now, I thought that maybe he had it right all along. All I've ever done is work. What is there to do now? I asked. Find someone to love before it's too late. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1492 Story number one. An insignificant ball of dirt. Written by Echoing Cascade. Warlord Maws of the Mysorian Empire was elated. He had finally done it. He had broken the Skillet's line. And now his armada was approaching the planetoid designated as Skillet 4. When we declared war, they fought with what little they had. We made quick work of their meager defenses. That is, uh, until we reached this sector. Then the skillets turned rabid. They managed to stop our advance by sheer force of will. They even pulled forces from the cradle world to protect this little ball of dirt. And now, uh, I'm gonna find out why. Governor Strack was waiting for the Mysoran warlord. He had ordered a total surrender. We, uh, tried to keep them from here, but it's too late now, the governor mused. He had poured a measure of wine for the warlord and himself. Before this meeting was over, they would both need it. May the gods have mercy, because, uh, he certainly won't. He lived alone, far from any city. He was spading a fertile soil of his enormous garden. The vegetables were looking good this year. He loved the peace quiet. He half looked at the suns and smiled. Then he saw the combat vessels up by, 
Then another. And another. His smile faded. By the time the first explosion reached his ears, he was seeing red. Literally, the only sound from that on was his heart, beating nearly hard enough to shatter his ribcage. He calmly walked to his old shed next to his house, pulled the thick chains around the door with one hand, and tore them like so much wet tissue paper. He would need his combat kit once more. Warlord Moores made his way to the panicked governor's office. He didn't expect any trouble, but still came accompanied by four dozen elite warriors who would secure the building. He forcefully opened the doors, grabbed a drink waiting for him on the side of the large table, and sat down, grinning at the governor. His grin turned into a frown of puzzlement at the governor's expression. I expected him to look meek and defeated, why is he looking at me with, uh, pity? No matter. He had a mystery to elucidate before continuing with the war, and he was going to get his answers. All right, Governor. I want to know what this planet hides, what secret is so important that protecting it takes precedent over your cradle world. The Governor gave a weak smile and nodded. A long time ago... A portal opened, and out came a soldier. A marine, as he called himself. He was clad in armor and carried a small arsenal with him. The warlord was expecting many things. He had ample time to come up with theories. Some alien warrior was not one of them. You're hiding a uh, soldier? The governor nodded. To say that he was on edge when he arrived would be an understatement. He was ready for combat at all times. He didn't even rest or eat for the first few months. I'm sorry. Uh, did you say months? Yeah, he's tougher than any species catalogued. When he eventually calmed down and allowed us to run some tests, we found out his species must have evolved on a death world. The warlord rose to his feet, panic flaring. Death worlders are real. The governor drank deep from his goblet. Yes, but what he is is nowhere near important as what he can and will do. The warlord sat down, looking bewildered. Death wilders are only theorized possible. No sentient species has ever risen from a world where everything is out to kill you. And the fact that they exist is uh, not the issue. He liked toiling the earth, said it calmed him down. He liked his solitude, so we gave him a blot of land and left him to his own devices. The governor put his drink down and looked at the warlord's eyes. Then the helix attacked us. Never heard of them. And you never will. Until that day, we took his stories of battling machine-enhanced demons, amoral angels, and other monstrosities as a way for him to deal with his PTSD. The governor was shaking now as he recalled what he had seen. But it wasn't. You have no idea of the brutality he is capable of, the horrors he can inflict on his enemies. He must have faced demons and other abominations and learned true cruelty from them. That's the only way what he does makes any sense. The warlord downed the rest of his drink in one gulp. His nerves were failing him, but he rallied. 
A frightening tale for certain, but if you think this is going to save your people, you are wrong. Besides, if he is as powerful as you claim, why do you protect him? That makes no... Explosions and screams coming from the outside cut the conversation short. The warlord tried to contact his guards, but all he got in response was gurgling noises. The sounds of frantic firing. Distinctly unhealthy wet sounds and screams. Seemingly unending screams. We weren't protecting him. We were protecting you from him. You see, the reason you haven't heard of the Helix is because... He killed them. All of them. What? What does he want? I'm sure that we can come to an understanding. The governor took the wine bottle on the table and handed it to the warlord, who began to drink from it in earnest. You awoke him from his peaceful slumber. You rekindled his anger. Now he's rage and a hatred in the shape of a man. There is no reasoning with him. Now... He only wants one thing. What? To remove what he views as enemies in the most brutal and expedient way possible. To rip and tear until it is done. End of story. Story number two. Humans are perceptive. Written by H. Defort. Hello, soldiers of the Tau Sede Special Command Group. Welcome to the Ford Operations Base of Orion Sector. Today, I have to brief you on humans. I know you're highly motivated and ready for battle. When I was informed that the previous units have underperformed due to overconfidence and lack of mental preparation. As you prepare for tomorrow's battle, you need to understand what you are facing. Let me get this straight. Some say humans are lucky, and that's why they managed to beat everyone in battle. As if they had some putative bond with the universe, all psionic powers. But it's much, much worse than that. If it was just psionic powers, our psyrepressors would work against them. But these are fecking useless. Humans are not lucky. There is no such thing as luck. They are not psionic. And they don't have a secret bond with the universe. They are just so incredibly perceptive. Some say human perception peaks straight into the quantum fabric of reality, surfing on the quantum foam, drunk with unconscious mysticism. They might even cheat the universe's arrow of time by seeing possibilities that exist beyond the thin sliver of the now. They call this phenomenon the Penrose Peak, and it's part of their brain-spine structure. Their mind is literally made of quantum tunnels. Don't assume the human you see in front of you is really just standing in front of you. His mind is pervading the whole room, and he is not even paying attention. Yet. Don't try and follow human in negotiations. His daydreams will betray you. Don't assume a human will not feel the sabotage in his weapon. He will have afterthought. Don't expect humans to choose the wrong button, pill, door, or setting at random. They will sense the purpose beyond your cleverest obfuscation. Don't lose time lying to them. They'll most likely defeat your most complex ruses. 
If asked about these physically impossible feats, they will tell you that they don't have any idea. They just knew. They had an intuition. They felt something. Luck, fate, a hunch, a tickle on the tip of the nose. One of the options seemed friendlier. Or somehow talked to them. They didn't like the feeling of this or that. They defy common sense. They make a joke out of causality. They untangle the quantum puzzle. You are facing humans in battle. Don't give them time, space, or options. Don't leave anything lying on the floor. Humans might randomly assemble some impossible contraption and just kill you with the most innocent-looking items. They call it MacGyvers. We've lost thousands of soldiers to those. Even when they don't understand what an item is or how it works, they can intuitively turn it into a lethal weapon. Just attack the human with overwhelming force. Don't overthink it. Don't wait and out. Don't try and outsmart them. Frontal attack, no staging, and maybe, maybe on that specific day, the human won't get too lucky, intuitive, or crafty. They won't do anything seemingly impossible, won't randomly defeat your tactics, won't break the laws of the fucking universe for once. And then, maybe, on a single soldier from your unit will survive the battle, barely, they return to camp. With a fucking broomstick duct-taped onto the Denabian plasma torch embedded into his pectoral exoskeleton for good measure. MacGyvered, as the humans say. You'd call it a glorious victory. Humans will just call it a Monday morning. And they'll be back for the broomstick. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1493. Story number two. Rebirth, written by British Tea Company. Passing its millionth orbit around the ruins of the ring world, the piece of rubble continued its daily routine as it flew again in the quiet space, still bearing the proud letters Saviour from the former bulkhead of the once mighty warship remained in its squalid existence, accompanied by countless other pieces of loose engineering as it slept in the darkness of space. Six hundred thousand years ago, a mighty war had been fought in the Centauri system when the human empire erupted into a violent war of succession. Two brothers battled against one another, vying for the laurel of lordship over the galaxy. When the dust settled, and when the last shots had been fired, there was victory for no one. Only the last breaths of a dying world's. The silent screams of broken ships and the simultaneous eruptions of thousands of stars. 600,000 years later, the galaxy's wounds slowly healed, but the sheer extent of destruction which had occurred was a testament to the ancient human depth of ambition and exactly what they would do to achieve said ambitions. The Void Quadrant Almost a one-quarter of the entire galaxy was thousands upon thousands of light-years of shattered planets, dead stars, and broken marvels of technology and engineering. Yet, here, even from the grave, the humans were still the bane of the living. The Void Quadrant was a death sentence to anything short of a military expedition force, 
even after the death of their masters. Many automated human AIs still operated. It was well known that one of the great crises faced by the galaxy at one point had been an entire fleet of automated battleships from the human empire awoke from their slumber, carving widespread destruction throughout their wake. Several species perished in that war alone. One major discovery found in the aftermath was that the human automated war machines were programmed to eradicate all sentient non-human life. Given the ruthlessness that they must have showed to each other in their civil war, such a discovery surprised no one. For the last 600,000 years, only the brave and the bold dared to trespass into the Void Quadrant, lest the slumbering children of humanity would awaken. Recently, disturbing reports have begun to surface as the galaxy grew more and more anxious. Unconfirmed but credible sources had begun to say that many graveyards had begun to feature activity. Drones and automated warships were visiting their fallen brethren. Today, the Savior's bulkhead would be interrupted in its daily orbitals around the ruin of the Ringworld. A little repair drone had floated by it, hooking it and dragging it along. Where to? The bulkhead wouldn't know until it felt the familiar feeling of the rest of its body. Piece by piece, the broken form of the mighty Dreadnought was put together again as the repair drones diligently worked their way through. The onboard AI awakened once more. While not quite the peak efficiency without a human crew, the Dreadnought would still follow its orders dutifully. The small amount of sentience it possessed would react in surprise as it found an order in its data log only weeks old. Like a dutiful hound to its master, the vessel's newly repaired engines warmed up and made haste to a new destination. Since the time of its master's passing, the galaxy had grown unclean. Normally, it would be like a ravenous wolf ready to tear at the throats of these unwanted guests. Today, it went like a happy puppy back to a familiar place. By the time it arrived, the system was already filled with tens of thousands of human vessels, all of which had been instructed to return here. Their masters were alive, and they would be seeing them all very soon. End of story. Story number one. Humans are explosive. Written by Numerous Sun 4282. An excerpt from the noted xenobiologist Kakorag Thai's new publication, the newest member of the galactic civilization, Humans of Earth. There are many words that can describe humans. It would be fair to call them stubborn, loud, excited, energetic, strong, foolish. The truth is, Many humans defy a singular word to describe them. They are too diverse a species to fit into such a tidy summation. At least, that's what I had thought after studying them for only a few months. I had the great privilege of visiting their planet of origin, where I bore witness to all manner of their cultural, society, and lifestyles. It was there that I found the single, all-encompassing word that describes humans. 
Humans are explosive. Yes, you could describe their temperament this way, all their works of art and passion. But that is not how I choose to use this description. I do mean explosive quite literally. Humans have had a fascination with explosion destruction since the earliest days of their civilization. They have harnessed such powers for a multitude of reasons and gone to such ludicrous lengths to indoctrinate explosions into their everyday life. The first example many of my fellow xenobiologists and xenoanthropologists might think of would be fireworks. For those of you who have not had the chance to witness the recordings, I can certainly recommend them. In the great love of explosions, humans have developed a long-practiced art of creating colorful detonations that they launch into the night sky for the sole purpose of excitement. I hold this evidence to be sufficient that humans love explosions, as no other species has ever wielded explosives as a recreational activity. These colorful bursts will deafen many a creature, even humans, if they stand too close. And though the fleeting sight is beautiful, the shrapnel that falls back to their planet poses significant fire and pollution risks. And still, humans mark the full revolution of their planet around their star, as well as some other events with celebratory explosions. But this alone is not why humans are explosive. Let us next examine how they have come to join us in the galactic neighborhood. It was by trying themselves to the front of explosives and hurtling headlong into space. The means by which they escape their planet is no more than a prolonged directed explosion. While a citizen of the stars might easily recognize the sharp efficiency of a Zringer ion engine or the grace of a Lothorian light sail, there is no mistaking a human's vessel. In their rush to explore space, they designed a harsh craft that is propelled quite literally by detonating one of the most powerful military bombs they have ever designed behind it and riding the blast like a deranged Korikori bird trying to surf a wave of nuclear fallout. And that only touches upon the absolute devotion to detonation that humans have employed in their military campaigns. It was a humbling lesson that the Tritoni soldiers learned when they found themselves on the end of human weaponry in the human Tritoni War. As a side note, the humans refer to this as simply the Tritoni War because, in their words, they started it. I tried to explain to them that the Galactic Standard Conventions, we named the war first with the victor species, then with the losing species, thinking that it would flatter the victor and make history lessons easier. They laughed and began listing wars with that convention. A frighteningly long one was called the British-American-Russian-French-German-Japanese-Italian War. They claimed the name was not comprehensive of all the parties of the struggle. As the Tritoni discovered, humans did not rely on lesser-based weapons, but instead used kinetic-based projectile weapons propelled by, you guessed it, explosions. Humans had miniaturized the explosives and stuck them into tubes with projectiles in front of them and then detonated them. 
The resulting explosion would launch the projectile at ludicrous distance at speeds that would highly discourage one from being in their path. Conventional anti-laser armor crumbled under single rounds of the smallest of these projectile weapons, and humans had contrived to create giant versions of these weapons to be mounted on their vehicles that could deliver, by an explosion, a projectile that contained an explosive well beyond the horizon with frightening accuracy. But explosives are not solely the military endeavor for humans. Until very recently, the average civilian in one of the developed regions of their planets would employ the use of an explosive chamber for locomotion. The device, called the internal combustion engine, would work by creating a series of explosions in a small tube that would compress the piston and turn a central axle. Yes, even the name is horrifying. These heavy hunks of metal would be mounted near feet from the operator and would achieve explosive rates in thousands per minute. Yes, several thousand explosions per minute. Thankfully, humans have become more aware of the impact of the explosion fetish and have taken strides to reduce their use. Their current ground vehicles employ electric motors and their latest spacefaring vessels have begun to employ other technologies. I wish to say that these methods of transport were new to the humans, but they had already researched solar sails and ion engines and had considered them less viable than blowing up the back of their own vessel in the name of speed. And another thing to add to the lengthy list that humans have exploded, they have most certainly blown my mind. End of story. And that, my friends, is the end of this podcast version of Tales from Outer Space. I hope that you enjoyed. Please check the links down below if you wish to support any of the authors that wrote any of the stories in this episode. There are also links if you wish to support this channel. And I'll see you all in the next episode. And until then, I hope that you have a fantastic one. Cheers.